This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. Well, this is a real treat. This is an interview that I have been looking forward to for literally years. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last seven years or so, you know the name Paul Manafort. And chances are that narrative, whatever you know about Paul Manafort, is from people other than him. Well, for the next hour, you are going to get to hear from the horse's mouth all about the items you've heard about in the news. What's true, what's exaggerated, what's completely fabricated. And we'll get his take on a number of areas that he has a great deal of expertise in. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome longtime political consultant, former chairman of the Trump presidential campaign and author of the forthcoming book, Political Prisoner, Persecuted But Not Silenced, the one and only Paul Manafort. Paul, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I know this is one of your first radio interviews. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure to be with you again. Uh, Paul, I, I think a lot of people know you because of your association with Donald Trump, and I think most people first came to hear your name during the 2016 campaign. How did you get to know Donald Trump originally? Well, we've, I actually knew Trump going back to the early 80s. Uh, in, in 1980, my, uh, um, my partner, Roger Stone, uh, was the, the Reagan for president coordinator for the Northeast. And uh, in that capacity, Roger got to know Trump. Uh, and, uh, and when Reagan was elected and we then started Blackman Up Fort Stone, which is a political consulting and government affairs firm in Washington, uh, Trump was one of our first clients. And although Roger spent most of the time with him, I got to know him you know, pretty well in, in the early 80s. Your experience in politics did not begin with the 2016 presidential campaign. You were a pretty experienced Republican political operative going back more than four decades. I'm wondering, uh, explain to folks who may not be familiar with your background in presidential politics, what you did on the Ford campaign in 76 and what your role was in electing Ronald Reagan in 1980. Sure. Uh, in, in the Ford campaign, I worked at the White House and, uh, Actually, for uh, for Dick Cheney, who was the chief of staff at that time, uh, uh, and when Ford decided to run for president, I ended up go- going over to the campaign and working with Jim Baker, who was the chairman of the uh, campaign manager of the campaign, and Stu Spencer, who was the consultant. And uh, I did a bunch of the con- delegate work at the conventions, coordinating uh, what was a very d- difficult nomination fight. And then in 1980, uh, I handled the convention states and ran the convention for uh, Governor Reagan. Fast forward to 2016. You'd done a lot of things in American politics. You've done a lot of things in politics overseas, overseas, which we'll get into. How did you come to work on the Trump campaign in 2016? Well, yeah, I, I got involved because Trump uh, Trump was a one-man uh, campaign by himself. He was the candidate. He was the campaign manager. He was the communication director. He was the pollster. Uh, he was the scheduler. And, and he did an incredible job. I've never seen one man serving that many functions successfully. Uh, but what happened was, as he was winning the primaries against the other 16 candidates, 
he wasn't paying attention to the process the process of electing delegates to the national convention. And a lot of the states that were, had a had a two tiered system. We have primaries were one thing, and but delegate selection was another thing. Cruz understood that he had a bunch of experienced convention operatives on his campaign, and Trump was winning the primaries, and Cruz was winning the delegates, and uh, and it was starting to become apparent that uh, you know, if Trump didn't get enough committed vote to vote support at the first, on the first ballot. He would uh, we'd go to a second ballot and the floor would be filled with non-Trump delegates, <clears throat> and Trump didn't understand that. I mean, this was a detail. He thought the prime, he thought he was getting cheated by the Republican National Committee and the rules of the party. Uh, but once he found it out after meeting with Reince Priebus, he realized he needed somebody who understood that that arcane practice. And uh, <clears throat> through a variety of different means, uh, Roger talking to Trump, uh, another friend of mine talking to Trump. Uh, he called me up and asked me to get involved, and I did. And quickly, uh, we started to you know we started to cover that problem, and and I my role grew to the point where he then asked me to be the chairman, and I pulled together the campaign for the general election. You became the chairman. Obviously, you were targeted by the press and a number of other entities almost from the uh, almost from the beginning. It was reported in several sources that you had agreed to work on the Trump campaign in 2016 for free. Was that true? Yes. You know, I knew Trump and I knew that uh, Trump understood that if he's paying people, they're staff. <laughs> and I also know that he doesn't particularly listen to staff if, he, if he's got an opinion on things. And so I feel, felt the only way he was going to listen to me, and I told him this, was if he was getting my expertise as a volunteer who wanted him to win and didn't work for him. And uh, he understood my point. Most people didn't understand that point, but he understood it exactly. And uh, and I, as a result, I was able to have the kind of frank conversations that nobody else in the campaign was having other than his daughter and, uh, and his family. And uh, would you say that he that that worked? Did he actually listen to the advice that you were giving? Uh, Yes. I mean, he always had an opinion, uh, but he he understood my value and he understood that I I had a skill set that was important and I had a lot of experience and uh, more than anybody else on the campaign, frankly. uh, And he knew that. Uh, And and so he would have listened anyhow, probably. But I think it helped him pay attention more. And. He didn't, I didn't always get my way, but he listened. And uh, when I would be able to persuade him, you know, we, we were, we, he would agree. He, and he gave me a lot of authority. I mean, my role kept changing because he saw that I could handle what had to be done. And there were things that he didn't want to do that, uh, that I, you know, I took the responsibility for, including looking ahead as he was doing what he wanted as a candidate out on the field. Uh, you know, I had to put together a campaign that was going to reach into Washington, reach into uh, the 50 states uh, uh, and would be general election ready uh, because he had a bunch of people supporting him who were not part of the regular system. And they were the reason he won in the end. But the, but without the foundations of the of the establishment, he would have had he would not have won the 2016 election. He would have gotten that, I think, on his own. But I helped facilitate that. And, uh, and put it together. You had this world-famous lobbying and political consulting firm, Black, Manafort, and Stone. Uh, you obviously worked on the Trump campaign in 2016. How was it that the other named partner in this legendary political consulting for- firm, Charlie Black, ended up being sort of the lead never-Trumper among Republicans in the country? 
<laughs> well, life has strange twists, right? It does indeed. Charlie was, by, by the time of the Trump campaign, Charlie was part of the Republican establishment. In fact, he probably epitomizes the Republican establishment uh, uh, in, a, in his age bracket now. And uh, uh, I don't know that he was a never Trumper, but uh, he wasn't a Trump fan. And, uh, and, uh, and a lot of the people who were friends of his were the key, were the core of the never Trumpers. Uh, and, uh, uh, but but in the general election, he came on board and. Uh, he did. He did work for the president. President elect. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Paul Manafort, a longtime Republican political consultant, attorney, former chairman of the Trump campaign in 2016, felon, as pardoned by President Trump, and the author of the of the forthcoming book, Political Prisoner: Persecuted, Prosecuted, but Not Silenced. So, Paul, the book. If people are interested in it, because I'm very interested in reading it, that's not going to be out until August. It's out in August, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon or, uh, or Barnes & Noble or Simon & Schuster. All right. Now, um, the thing that you've become best known for over the last four years has been your criminal cases. You, do you believe that you were targeted because of your relationship, your affiliation, political, professional with Donald Trump? Well, yes. Um the you know the the whole legal case that, that they brought against me was uh, were on issues that the you know certain people in the government had already dismissed. I mean the the fair issue, which was the initial basis for my my uh, firing, uh, my uh, being ar- arrested, was a matter that I had dealt with the fair unit at the Department of Justice, and uh, and th- they had we had worked out an understanding. They they th- thought it was a gray area. They didn't think I needed to file, but there was some because it was such an, a hot button topic in uh, in August of 2016. Uh, they wanted me to do a limited disclosure, civil you know was part of the civil division. There's no criminality. Uh, there were no fines. Uh, we worked out the language. And I get, go into this in the book. And after I had worked out the deal, it was, it was approximately around the time that the special counsel was reported. And one of uh, one of uh, uh, Andrew Weissman's first jobs as part of as the, the Mueller point guy was to call up Fair and say, uh, "I've got the Paul Manafort case. I'm Fair now. You're done." And throw out and he threw out my doc my agreement with the. Uh, with now, it is possible to be targeted and be selectively prosecuted and still be guilty of the crimes that you are charged with. Do you believe if you look at the charges uh, both times around, both the charges in uh, Virginia and in the District of Columbia, do you believe that you were guilty of violating the law, even if this is not something that you would have been prosecuted for, but for your relationship with Donald Trump? Uh, well, I, I, there was a, t- it's a technical issue as to whether I was or not. I, I've accepted responsibility for it. Uh, but for example, on the, the, the tax issues that they brought out me, I had disclosed all that information to the government when I was helping them in a corruption investigation they were doing in Ukraine. Wow. And voluntarily I sat down with them and gave them all the information that Weissman then two years later took, dusted the, the dusted off and turned them into criminal charges instead of cooperative information that I was giving them. Uh, so, you know, Weissman, I, 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 but for my relationship in the Trump campaign, there's no way I would have been targeted. I wouldn't have spent two years in jail. You could have done what a lot of other people involved in high-profile prosecutions, especially 
you know, I mean, uh, you're in good shape from what it appears, but you're in your 70s. I, I imagine a lot of people in their 70s aren't eager to spend time in federal prison. And you could have chosen to cooperate from the get go, probably cho- uh, and probably avoided any prison sentence at all. Instead, you chose to go to trial. Uh, you were you were convicted. And then it, they brought about <laughs> talk about adding insult to injury. They brought about a, a second criminal case. In that case, you chose to prosecute and plead guilty in that case. One, do I have the chronology of events right in 2018 and 2019? And, and two, why did you choose to cooperate in that second case after uh, going to trial in the first case? But the first case, I didn't think I was guilty on any of the charges. The first case in Virginia was a very high profile case. Um, and I, I wanted to move the, the venue of the of court because I didn't think in D.C., in Virginia, in Northern Virginia, I could get a fair trial. Well, I couldn't move it. I, the case was had it, for two and a half. It was, it was the, case, the the jury was out for almost a week. The case itself was over three weeks. Uh, so it was a it was a month long case. My name was in the front pages every day. Um, my D.C. case was a month later. Uh, there was no way I felt I could get a jury in D.C. That was not going to uh, already have me con- have me convicted. And in fact, I void we in our voir dire to choose our jurors. Normally, you have uh, you have twenty twenty five jurors that you select uh, twelve from. I had I had a, a hundred and twenty, and I found one juror that was that was not part, part partisan. Uh, and so it was going <laughs> there was no way I was going to get a fair trial. None in the second case, and uh, and they were Weissman was trying to, he, he basically bankrupted me, but in the process, he was also trying to bankrupt my children. And he had included assets that were theirs, that over the course of my, my life, I had given to them. And he was getting all, calling all of this ill-gotten uh, money laundering money, uh, uh, properties. And so I cut a deal to get my kids' properties out of the, out of the forfeiture. Uh, however, in cutting a deal, I didn't, I mean, I agreed not to go to trial. I didn't agree to agree to their narrative. And uh, now the the media was writing up, Trump is going to jail. Manafort's cut a deal. And uh, I knew I was never going to get what they call a 5K letter, where the prosecutor says he's been a cooperating witness, which they do when they've gotten you to say what they want you to say. Uh, Because what they wanted was me to to give them a narrative that was not true. And I wasn't going to lie. If, and uh, if you and had, so they then threw other charges on me. They said I lied under the in the grand jury, uh, and the judge who was already she might have been sitting at the prosecutor's table as <laughs> she was so much into their pocket. The judge basically uh, did everything she could to put me in jail for what she thought was going to be the rest of my life. Uh, could you have given them damaging criminal information on President Trump? No, no. I mean, Weissman had a false narrative, and uh, and I would you know I would have had to lie which he was more than willing to let me do, to give him what he wanted. And I wouldn't do that. Obviously, the fact that the prosecution against you used information that you voluntarily provided to the government is a pretty strong indication of how you're going to answer my next question. But would you characterize the Mueller probe and the prosecutors that worked for Mueller, including Andrew Weissman, would you characterize that as a fair prosecution? (laughs) <laughs> Maybe in Russia. 
but that'd be about it. So what what else did what else did the Mueller team do which you felt was particularly egregious and was not in keeping with a good faith with what a good faith prosecution should be? Well, let's put it this way: from the start, they indicted me. They put through a ten million dollar bond on me. John Gotti didn't have to pay ten million dollars to get out of prison for when he was indicted. Uh, they then, the same day they yeah, they put the ten million dollar bond on me, they put a gag order on me, so I couldn't talk to the press. Then, for the next two years, they leaked selectively misinformation that made headlines uh, that convicted me in the court of public opinion, and I couldn't answer anything. And then when finally, after four bail packages, because I didn't have $10 million, I, I was able to get, make bail through the help of friends and family, uh, they realized I'd be out of home confinement because until I made bail, I was on home confinement for about five months. And when I finally, it was finally clear that the judge, I had packaged together a bail package that the piece of which the judge had approved in the, in the different submissions, so I collectively had now, they then threw a... Uh, Tamper, witness tampering uh, charge against me for a witness list that didn't exist and a witness that I didn't talk to, uh, but it was enough to make the judge uh, who was in there on their side, as far as I was concerned, say that she couldn't trust me. I was a danger to the community, and she sent me from court directly to prison wow. where I was put in solitary confinement for a year. And that's one of the great shames about your case, because with a few exceptions, Alan Dershowitz stands out, but with very few other exceptions, I don't remember hearing any civil libertarians or any traditionally liberal defenders of overzealous prose- of uh, uh, you know defenders against overzealous prosecution standing up in your defense and saying what was being done to you was wrong and to me you don't have to be a trump supporter to think that it's wrong to target someone be- because of their political affiliation uh, did you find that did you were you were you disappointed if not surprised at the silence from groups like the ACLU and others. Yeah, I, I, yes, I was surprised. In fact, it wasn't just the silence in support of what I was having, but it was almost complicit in in supporting what was being done to me. Um, because it was, I mean, it was not like these were gray areas where my rights were being abused, um, and and there was nothing. Dershowitz was one of the very few. Turley, to some degree, uh, on a, on occasion, but that was it. And, uh, you know, and the Washington establishment, legal establishment, they were in lockstep, uh, principally because they were all part of the swamp that Trump was trying to clear out. Yeah, that, that's one of the great shames of the last uh, six years is that when it comes to Donald Trump, his critics just see red. Uh, they almost become unable to have a rational discussion of anything related to Donald Trump. You can't say to them, OK, I know you don't like Donald Trump. I know you'd never vote for him in a thousand years, but take a look at this. Isn't this wrong? What is uh, you mentioned being in solitary confinement for a year because we all know uh, what a threat most 70 year old prisoners happen to happen to be. What's prison like for someone like Paul Manafort, someone that's well known, someone that's used to knowing multiple presidents, wearing custom made suits, working on political campaigns all over the world? What's federal prison like for someone like you? I mean, the solitary confinement was uh about about an eight by ten room, a uh, no windows, a slot in the door for the food tray to be put through it uh, three times a day. Uh, you know, I I couldn't tell the time of, from myself because it was 
they're all concrete walls and, and, and doors with no windows. Um, in fact, the way I was able to connect with the world, other than once a week being able to see my wife uh, when she'd come visit behind a, but through a plexiglass uh, window, was uh, a, the, one of the old 1960 transistor, Sony transistor radios where I had AM service and was able to listen to conservative talk radio. So between the radio and, uh, and preparing for my case, uh, you know, I w- wild away the 24 hours a day. Mm. Uh, and again, we have a lot of, I've always been very proud of uh, the fact that we have a lot of listeners in prison right now. And uh, there's folks listening at the MCC in Manhattan, the MDC in Brooklyn, uh, up at Rikers Island, the tombs in Manhattan, and uh, even state correctional facilities in upstate New York and in New Jersey. So we have a wide listenership in prison Probably some people who are guilty, probably some people that believe uh, they're not guilty. Almost everybody who thinks they've gotten a a raw deal somewhere along the line. Anything that you'd say to people listening in prison right now who are feeling awfully lonely and are dealing with the same sort of injustices that you feel you might have been having to deal with? You know, the the craziness of of our our rules and regulations uh, for for prisoners, for solitary confinement, which is inhumane treatment, yet rationalizing it as trying to protect the prisoner. It's not protecting a prisoner. It's punishing a prisoner and trying to break him, in my case, where they they were doing this to try and get me to agree to the narrative so I could get out of there. Um, uh, And and then just, you know, the the rules, the CARES Act, uh, the the First Step Act that Trump passed as president, which made him a very popular person in the prisons and very popular with the the minority communities as well. Uh, They the rules and regulations are clear, but the the wardens don't follow them and uh, they don't follow them because they, you know, their business is to keep people in jail, not get people out of jail. Uh, you know, the, 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 the programs that don't exist that are, are heralded as, you know, cha- cha- programs that will change the lives of our prisoners. They don't. I mean, it's so that the whole system is, is not meant to accomplish justice. Uh, and, and I talk about that in the book. And so to those listening from prison, I hear, I, I got your back and we're going to be talking about it. And, and, you know, there are people in prison who are guilty. That's right. And they, and a lot of them admit it. And some of them want to even change, but prison doesn't help them change. So was that the rationale for putting you in solitary? The fact that they were protecting you? Yeah, oh, yes, that was it. They, I mean, they, they, they had to protect me. Now, mind you, when I finally, when the cases were over and I was sent to a, to a prison and not in the, uh, uh, the jail system, I went to, I was supposed to go to a, uh, to a camp because I was a first time offender and uh, didn't have any violence in my record. Um, But Weissman and Cy Vance arranged to have uh, charges brought against me in New York State, or New York City, rather. And I go into that in the book. It was all a game. I mean, they knew I, they they didn't think that they could bring the charges. There was the double jeopardy issue. Uh, I I ended up winning on that, and the case was thrown out of New York. But but, um, that kept me from going to a camp, and instead it sent me to a a low security prison in, in Pennsylvania, and I was in the general population of Pennsylvania. My safety was fine. I, I, there was no reason for me to, to be in solitary confinement. And in fact, I, in some respects, uh, a lot of people had my back in the, in the, in Loretto, which is where I was, uh, and thought, you know, that admired what made me being firm in my beliefs and, uh, and, and some of the things that I'd done. 
you uh, were indicted along with uh, Rick Gates, someone who worked for you and was uh, at times described as your partner. Uh, Rick Gates chose to go a different route. He did not choose to go to trial. He chose to become a cooperating witness. Were you disappointed or surprised by this uh, decision by your former business associate? Well, he wasn't a partner, but I, I was shocked. And uh, I found in the book, I explained why he ended up doing it. And there were reasons because of things he had done in his life that they had known about. And th they got him to get cooperate is one way of saying it. Lie is another way of saying it. Um, and the, there was no evidence, factual evidence on, in my case. I, mean, I was convicted after four days of deliberation uh, based on Gates's testimony, even though we discredited him, they, they, and, and again, I get into this in the book, they, they, they were, there were millions of pages of documents. And, and part of Weissman's strategy was to have this case be so, seemed to be so enormous. They didn't just charge me with two or three crimes. They charged me with 32 counts. They, uh, you know, they, they, they uh, literally produced millions of pages of documents. And, uh, uh, and and they they put on a very long case uh, to the point that even the judge in Virginia criticized them. And he said, I know what you're doing. Uh, you can do it, but this is not the way to seek to get justice. And, uh, and so the jury, yeah, I mean, frankly, I, I was impressed that they stayed out as long as they did. And they, they only convicted me of not even half the charges. Mm. Um, but but the, not on evidence. It was on the the, the optics of the of the of the uh, case and in the testimony of people who didn't tell the truth. Do you lend any credence to any of the theories that something fishy happened with uh, Jeffrey Epstein? There were a lot of theories that said somebody like Jeffrey Epstein could never have been left alone long enough to to kill himself when he was that high profile of a prisoner. You were similarly situated. You were almost an Epstein level profile prisoner. Do you have any theories about what happened with Epstein, given the fact that you well, saw this from a different perspective than most of us? Well, actually, I saw it from the same perspective because I, haven't, I had to go to New York to be arraigned, uh, and I was in the the, uh, the uh, solitary confinement for for one week at the MCC, and uh, you know I, there were two other prisoners up in that floor on the four cells. One of them was El Chapo, and the other was Jeffrey Epstein, hmm. and uh, and uh, it's pretty hard to to do kill himself in the in the cell that the cell that I saw I only saw my cell uh, I wouldn't have been able to hang myself with anything uh, but you know frankly I mean I I saw the guards not paying attention uh, you know they weren't doing the checks they weren't monitoring on me so I I can easily believe they weren't monitoring him as well um, and the guy literally was picked up on a private jet coming in from Paris and brought to the MCC and stuck in solitary confinement. That had to be quite a shock for him. Yeah, this is a guy who lived a pampered life, and uh, this was the exact opposite extreme. And uh, he may not have been able to handle that. I don't know. I can imagine. Tell me your reaction when you were pardoned by President Trump in uh, December of 2020. Did you know it was? Did you know it was coming? Where were you? Who gave you the news? How did you react? I, I was at home. I was at. I was at. Home. I was on home confinement. I because of COVID, I was. I was able to get out of uh, of, of the prison to, to home confinement 
uh, the five months before I was pardoned. And uh, that's a whole different story. But uh, I never, you know, they, they, a lot of people said, oh, you had your deal with Trump. I never had, I never t- had a deal with Trump. I, I mean, I hoped and prayed that he would do what I thought would be the right thing, but I didn't, I didn't have an understanding with anybody. And, uh, and there were many times when people were getting pardoned that I wasn't on the list. And, I, you know, I, I didn't take that positively. I took, I was worried that maybe I was going to be bypassed or maybe he'd wait till his second term was over. Uh, and, and so I didn't know. And, uh, when, uh, when the pardon finally did come, I found out about it that day from a reporter <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I was sort of carefully monitoring it until lunchtime when it it was on the news everywhere that I was going to be on a list that afternoon. And, uh, and that night uh, it it came out and uh, it was a great thing. I was with my family and it was a very emotional moment. As it stands now, now you have been a lawyer since the seventies and a very well-respected lawyer. No, uh, um, no formal reprimands by the bar from any, from anything that I can tell. As it stands now, what is the status of your law license? Are you able to practice law and do everything that you did prior to your conviction? No. In D.C., I was uh, uh, I was disbarred for the conviction. Um, interestingly, Kevin Kleinsmith, the FBI uh, agent who uh, who was convicted of for, of uh, falsifying the FISA application, that was finally the one that the court approved to monitor Carter Page and and the Trump campaign uh, under uh, the Biden administration, uh, he was, he, he, he was uh, uh, not, not pardoned, but he, he meant the minimum sentence. And then the, the DC bar on its own initiative reinstated him. Wow. Wow. No, I, I, even on my initiative, I couldn't get reinstated in the DC bar, but they decided on their own that it, you know, they, this guy who was convicted of falsifying the application to a FISA court to surveil an American, he was, uh, his bar license was returned. So uh, it's again, the hypocrisy of the swamp. As it stands now, what's Paul Manafort doing today? What are you hoping to do na- next other than writing this book and hoping people buy it? Well, I'm spending time with family and true friends, which you start to appreciate a lot more after you go through what I did. And that's really been my number one, one uh, advocation. Uh, and I am starting to do some business. I am helping people. Uh, I'm not active in the way I was, uh, but there are th- there are activities that I'm now starting to undertake. And uh, and I'm probably going to get. I mean, the book is my main business right now. Uh, I'm pretty much finished with it. And I'm, as I said, talking to people. I may activate myself somewhat in the next couple of months. One, uh, just a couple of weeks after you were pardoned, um, world headlines focused on what happened in the Capitol on January 6th. A lot's been discussed about that. A lot's been debated about that. What are your thoughts overall on the January 6th riot? Well, again, it's the hypocrisy of the, uh, of the left. First of all, there are people in prison today who attended that rally to, to protest, not to do anything violent. And they're in jail now. Some of them are in jail. Uh, you know, we're not even being convicted yet. They're in jail pending cases being brought. That's outrageous. Uh, people expressing their opinion. 
Number two, what I find very hypocritical, the Pelosi's and Schumer's of this world who, who talk about the sanctity of the election results and, and the key to our democracy being to uh, recognize the election results, still haven't recognized the 2016 election. They've never recognized Trump's victory. And yet here they are telling Trump in a very contest, in a very, you know, a number of places where they're very questionable activities, that he should just suck it up. Mm-hmm. Now, whether you believe he should or not, again, it's the hypocrisy of the of the Democrats on the left to say that it's, uh, you should suck it up when you're when we win and when we lose. It's okay to not suck it up. Another country that you have a lot of experience in politically is Ukraine. We have to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to ask you about what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. If you're just tuning in, we're talking with Paul Manafort, my guest for the hour, longtime political consultant, former chairman of the Trump campaign, now a free man. And he's written about all of his adventures, all of his trials and tribulations, quite literally, in the book, Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, but not silenced. You can get it, uh, but you can pre-order it at Amazon.com. We'll continue straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano here on 77 WABC. The whole world is fixated and focused on what's happened in Ukraine. The Russian invasion is uh, still going strong. A lot of people dead on both sides. A lot of people forced to flee their homes. And I'm very, very privileged to be joined by someone who has extensive experience working in Ukraine, in Ukrainian politics, and has been... Uh, portrayed by some as a little bit of a villain in terms of this uh, Ukraine-Russia war, and that is Paul Manafort, longtime political consultant, former chairman of the Trump campaign, and author of the book Political Prisoner, which uh, is going to be available in August, but you can pre-order it on Amazon. Uh, Paul, just so folks understand your background when it comes to Ukrainian politics. Uh, I know that you were an advisor at various times to the former Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych. One of my favorite guests on the subject was of Russia was Professor Stephen Cohen. He had always said that he felt you kind of got a bad rap when it came to how you were portrayed as sort of a Putin stooge. He said, and I'm hoping you can clarify what the record actually is, that you were actually urging Yanukovych to take a more Western tilt in his agenda as opposed to a more Russian tilt. And Yanukovych was not by any means a Putin puppet at the time that he first ran and the time that you worked with him. Is Professor Cohen right about that? Or what was your role in Ukrainian politics? Well, he was 100 percent right about it. My, uh, my role in the politics, I ran you know, four parliamentary elections and a presidential campaign there, got to know the country extremely well. Uh, I think I know it better than Putin does right now, which I'll tell you, talk about in a minute. And when I got involved, what was very important to me, because Ukraine was, I thought, very important geopolitically, that uh, that it needed to become part of Europe and the European Union. And for a lot of reasons, which I go into in the book, I also felt that because Ukraine is two countries, how that was going to happen was going to be very complicated. Ukraine is a com- there's the, the eastern part, which is what Russian ethnic Ukrainians, and the western part of Ukraine is basically European, Hungarian, Romanian uh, Ukrainians. The eastern European, I mean, the eastern part uh, of the country, the Russians, the Russian ethnics there were 
very protective of their language, very protective of their culture, very protective of their Russian Orthodox faith, but they also were very protective of their, their freedom. And what I found in all of my polling was that Eastern Ukrainian Russian ethics did not want to be part of Russia. They wanted to be part of a united Ukraine. They were Ukrainian national. And they saw more hope in their future in the part of becoming part of the West, not part of Russia. Like Nixon was the only one to could open up China back in the, in the 70s, I felt that somebody from Eastern Ukraine was the only one who could bring Ukraine into Europe in a credible way without having a revolution in the country. And frankly, I ended up being correct on that. And Yanukovych, when he was elected president, uh, spent all of his time as president changing the, the laws, the regulations, the legal system, the economic system to comport with European rules and regulations uh, to make formal application. And that was, it was a very contentious process. The Europeans didn't make it easy. Yanukovych put all the power of his presidency behind it. And we almost were near the end of the, of the process when Putin finally woke up and realized Yanukovych was really going to side the, the, the association agreement, which was the trade agreement, which was the forebearer of the, uh, the, of the, of joining the European Union. And, and a week before Yanukovych was supposed to sign it, uh, Putin basically said, if you sign that document, this is all public information. None of this is private. It's all in the news. Putin said, you sign that document, I will shut down all trade with Ukraine, which was 70% of Ukraine's business. Uh, and so Putin, so Yanukovych, through me and others, reached out to Barossa and the European com uh, com uh, Commission and said, look, I need to have a bridge, bridge subsidies here during this period when Putin throws this trade agreement, uh, trade sanctions on me. Uh, otherwise, I can't, uh, my country will fall apart. Then the Europeans said no. So Yanukovych said, okay, I can't sign it right now. I've got to work out this problem, but I'm going to sign it. The Europeans wouldn't cooperate and they just left him to his own. And instead of the, the couple of billion dollars subsidy that it would have cost to bring Ukraine in, you know, we've got the mess we have today. Mm. Uh, Putin hated Yanukovych and and, I, and I, I had to have security guards when I was in Ukraine because he didn't like me either. He blamed me for what I was doing, uh, for what was happening. Uh, and so that's why I never took seriously when it first came out that there was Russian collusion and I was the link to Russia because it was such a joke. And, and again, everything I, to I just said and more is in the public domain. Right. It, you don't have to be doing hard research to understand this, as Cohen said. And uh, but it didn't fit the narrative. And so all of that history was ignored. And just the fact that uh, I was in that part of the world made me the link led to. And this is where, where the Durham investigation is starting to connect these dots. I mean, he's showing in the, some of his early indictments and the motions and the, and the filings that he's doing, you know, the, the, the case. It was, was exactly flipped. If you want to know what the Democrats are doing, just look at what they're saying we're doing, because that's usually what's happening uh, on their part. And he's, he's showing that. And the Ukrainian part is part of that whole uh, story, narr narrative that's coming out as well. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with this, but the prosecutors in your case allege that between 2010 and 2014, you made $60 million from working in Ukraine. Is that about right? I mean, I, honestly, I don't know how much it was. I mean, but the numbers they were using, I was, the, I managed a whole bunch of things, including the lobbyists who were filed and were rep doing the lobbying, not me, uh, in Washington. And, uh, 
And so they took the lump sum money as if it was all coming into my pocket. And it, I was running a major enterprise of, of, of lobbyists in Europe to become part of Ukraine, lobbyists in Washington to, to, to help them understand what was going on and what Ukraine was trying to do to become part of the European Union, uh, as well as political consulting because a number of things as well. So that number, I, and I don't know if 60 is correct over those four years or not, but, but that yeah, was well, not all my money. If, got it. I, I did well I, and, and openly did well. I didn't, I didn't hide it. You were also blamed or credited as being the reason that the GOP platform in 2016 softened some of its language on Russia. <laughs> was that your doing? Did you uh, yeah. make the, the GOP no. a little bit uh, easier no. on Russia? First of all, it, 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 the, the language that was adopted was the language that was in the platform that was drafted by the RNC platform committee that's then given to uh, the full convention and the convention committee then can deal with it and amend it. And there was an amendment on lethal aid to Ukraine that a cruise delegate in, in a subcommittee on foreign policy tried to amend the language of. I never even heard of it until the convention was long over and somebody asked me what was go- what, would, what had happened on that. So not only did we not change the platform it was the platform the rnc originally submitted but i never was even aware that the uh the, there was an attempt to amend it, it, it and and again they the joe gordon who handled this for the campaign committee uh and uh and the delegate the cruise delegate they all told the special counsel this uh but that narrative wasn't exciting it needed to be that i had ordered the the, the softening and the softening was was the language basically said appropriate assistance to Ukraine to defend itself against Russian aggression. And the amendment was going to be, instead of appropriate, lethal. Uh, so the difference was lethal or appropriate. Both both of the the, the options were, were much more pro-Ukraine than the Democratic platform or the Obama policy, which was not even to give appropriate assistance. It was to give, uh, you know, just basically blankets and food. One of the things that uh, Professor Cohen did say for the years that the Mueller probe was going on is that he felt that uh, Donald Trump really wanted, and he campaigned this way in 2016, to have a better relationship with Russia, to have detente and something that would uh, not only serve both countries well, but serve people people in places like Ukraine and Syria well. Uh, but that the Mueller probe and this myth that he was somehow a Russian agent or colluding with Russian agents to getting elected made him much tougher on Putin and Russia than he otherwise would have been. Is that a narrative that you agree with? Well, I don't think Trump would have ever allowed Putin to take any territory from Ukraine, for example. Um, I, I think Trump felt, you know, he saw, he knew who the bad guys in the world were, in Iran, in Russia, in China, in North Korea. And he had a strategy for each of them. And all of the strategies were focused on getting to know them one-on-one uh, because he felt that if any of these world leaders knew him one-on-one, they would understand what he said he meant, unlike what they're doing, how they treat Biden and what what Biden says. Uh, And so personal diplomacy was a key part of his strategy, and it would have been more so with Putin, I think, uh, uh, than it, it could be. But even then, he didn't allow the media to disrupt him trying to do it. It, it's, uh, but it just wasn't as effective. Give me your thoughts on the war that's going on now and uh, the best, best case scenario at this point, what you hope happens, and what the worst case scenario is at this point. 
Well, I mean, I, I the worst case is the, the country is going to be destroyed uh, because Putin's approach is to just carpet bomb it because the people are never going to give in. As I said a while ago, they want to be they want to be free. They cherish their freedom and they know what freedom means in the Russian definition. People are never going to give in. Afghanistan is going to look like a, a cakewalk compared to what Ukraine will be like if you if if Putin does get control of the country. Number one, in the best case, Putin ends up trying to cut a deal to legitimize Crimea. The pressure the West will put on on Zelensky will be you give up Crimea, let eastern Ukraine be uh, independent, uh, independent provinces, and, and you can go back to governing your country. That's that's the West best case. That would be a failure as well. Uh, if Putin is able to to legitimize what he's done to that country and not be held accountable for the genocide he's committed, uh, then the West will have just created more moments of, for the future of Putin's aggression going into places like Moldova, Georgia, Estonia. And, and the Poles understand this, for example. They know if, if Putin gets away with this, they're the border now, and they're not comfortable with that at all which means they're not comfortable with their comrades in the East, I mean, in Western Europe, protecting them. Uh, so we should be giving the MiGs. We should be allowing the, the getting more weapons into, uh, into Ukraine. We need to make this fight be as difficult for Putin as it possibly can be uh, because the people are never going to give up. How about we a, have to be there for them. How about Zelensky's request for a no-fly zone? Is that something Biden should do? And at, and at, look, there's no difference between a no-fly zone and a javelin. It's just a different tool. And, uh, and, and we definitely should do that. And we, we're, he's willing to, you know, we should give them drones with, with, with uh, you know, payloads that can uh, cause damage. We should let them have, get the MiGs that they can fly over their own territories. They're willing to defend themselves. They're not saying come in and help us. They just need the tools to defend them. And they got it under Trump. And the weapons that they've been winning the ground game on over the last three weeks are weapons that Trump delivered to them, not that Biden just delivered. Biden's weapons still haven't gotten there. You're surprising a lot of people. Uh, Someone who a lot of folks thought was a a Russian patsy saying we need to set up a no-fly zone and take the fight to Putin and Russia. I think this is uh, surprising a lot of listeners across the political spectrum. I want to take one quick break. When we come back, I want to ask uh, Paul Manafort about the midterms and the 2024 presidential race. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Talking to Paul Manafort straight ahead. W-A-B-C. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano in our final few minutes with. Paul Manafort, the former chairman of Donald Trump's political campaign, someone that was pardoned by him after a criminal conviction, and the author of the forthcoming book, Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, But Not Silenced. Uh, Paul, you've got a lot of experience as, uh, as we've been covering in presidential politics. What does your gut tell you about whether or not Donald Trump is going to run again in 2024? Well, I mean, I don't know if he's made his decision, but Biden's helping to make it. That's for sure. I mean, you, you look at Trump's successes and you know, all the important issues on the issue agenda of today, uh, and Biden's viewed as a failure, and Trump's policies are viewed as winners. And, and so, a, a real a campaign in twenty four, if Trump were to run, simply has to show his record 
what he did and show Biden's failed record and what he didn't do and, and how they've affected the American people. And the case makes itself, uh, you know, the, 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 the Democrats are going to try and make it an issue of personality again. And, uh, but I, I don't think they'll get away with it. I think in 2024, the record is going to be important and people's lives are going to be, if they're bad now, they're going to be worse in three years. Inflation's not going away. Uh, and, and the border problem is not going away. Energy independence is not going, is not going to happen again to this watch. Uh, and now the world is not a safer place. Everything Trump succeeded in putting together in four years or in three years, really, because he spent a year dealing with COVID, you know, Biden is undone in 12 months. Do you think Trump should run again? That's that's a personal decision that he has to make. I, I think if he does run, uh, there'll be a groundswell of support. I've been I've been speaking out lately, going around the country, talking to different groups, Republican groups, uh, some public uh, groups as well, and they still love him. And, uh, and they're you know, I, you're right. I don't go to New York to give speeches, uh, but uh, but places where an election can be won. They still love him. Well, in and, New York, uh, I got to tell you, in our listening area, uh, there are a lot of places where Trump's still quite popular. In uh, Staten Island, for instance, parts of Long Island, uh, parts of the Hudson Valley. Uh, Donald Trump's a rock star in a lot of different places that are not uh, Manhattan, the Bronx, or Brooklyn. I'll, I'll tell you that. Even parts of Queens, even parts of Brooklyn, actually, uh, Donald Trump is still pretty popular. If Assuming Trump decides for personal reasons not to run, just looking at it, not in terms of your personal preferences, but as a political analyst, who do you think the strongest Republican candidate is in 2024? Well, I mean, you know, candidates get strong as as they get into the, the primary process. I mean, we have a group of attractive candidates who can develop very nicely. I mean, certainly everyone talks about DeSantis. Uh, you've Also with Florida, you've got Rubio who would like to take a look at it again. Ted Cruz would like to take a look at it again. Um, some of the governors. Uh, you know, would, uh, you know, from out west, actually, uh, could be credible candidates. Uh, so we we're going to have another large group if Trump doesn't run, and and they will be accomplished, successful politicians. Uh, and on the right side, right now, of the issues that are are moving people in our country, such as you know education, you know, the the, the, the race in Virginia opened up. You know, a, a lot of territory for Republicans to appeal again to parents and to suburbs and, and women voters. Um, and so who runs the right campaign? And we've got a number of people who could and emerges, I think, will be probably the leading candidate. I also think that in 22, the Democrats are going to take a licking. And, uh, and what's going to happen, in my judgment, is the left, which has been gradually consolidating power, is going to take over the Democratic Party. And I'm talking about the woke left, not just the moderate left. And when that happens, I think the their their issue agenda, like right now under Biden, is going to be so extreme that it's going to affect the, the American people in a very major way. And the kind of, right now, when you look at the gen, generic ballot on Republican versus Democrat for the 22 elections, usually Democrats have a four or five point lead about right now. Republicans have a seven point lead. I mean, that's landslide territory for Republicans. I think that same kind of, of d- distinction will be true in a generic question on the presidency uh, in 2023 and 2024 if the left hijacks the uh, Democratic Party, which I think they're going to do. So needless to say, you think Republicans win both houses of Congress in the midterms? I, I, I think they definitely win the House big. 
and I think the Senate, they should win. I mean, the Senate races end up being more more driven by local personalities and candidates, but, but Republicans have are fielding a bunch of important good candidates. Uh, I think we could, there are three or four races uh, that uh, we can pick up, and there's one or two that we could lose. So the net margin we could pick up with, you know, two to three seats possibly and therefore take control of the Senate because we only need one. The um, if if the president, former president Donald Trump, does choose to run again, and he were to seek your advice, what advice would you give him this time around? What should he do differently? What should he do the same? What should he do this time around, um, as opposed to twenty 2020 twenty or twenty sixteen? Well, I mean, he ran an incredible campaign in twenty sixteen. Um, yeah, as I said, he was everything. He was the campaign manager, the candidate, the uh, candidate, the pollster uh, in, in twenty twenty. He was mired down by having to govern a, a pandemic where he was working, you know, 24-7 to try and figure out how to how to handle it, which he figured out. I mean, the Biden COVID strategy was to take Trump's strategy and just run with it. Uh, in 2024, I think he goes back to his record, what he what he was trying to do in, 20, in 2020, but for COVID, which is show his success, because his issue agenda is still the issue agenda of the American people. The difference is that the Democrats have had the, have been the, the people on the watch, and they've ruined the the, the American people's uh, be- benefits from those policies uh, in one year. So I can imagine what it's going to be like in three more years. So Trump needs to just focus on, here's what I did. I'm going to do it again. This is what the Democrats are doing. They don't represent you. Putting aside... And then you can... Putting aside the merits of the uh, claims about election fraud and so forth in the 2020 election, politically, do you think it's a mistake for President Trump to focus on election fraud as much as he is? Well, the American people have moved on. And I mean, I think Trump Trump feels that we have to have uh, sanctity of, of elections in order to have credibility of elections. And but but frankly, the states have been doing that in the last two years. They're changing election laws to deal with some of the issues that Trump claims were, were caused some fraud and, and may have decided the state state elections results. So the, the states are dealing with the solution. He's made the case. People, you, you look at polling, people understand his position on this. I think it's time now for him to, and, and not time yet, but after the 22 elections, it's time for him to focus people on what he achieved and what Biden has failed at, uh, because that's how he'll get reelected or elected. Finally, Paul, what is life like for you now? You mentioned making a lot of money in, in Ukraine and elsewhere. You mentioned the fact that the Weissman strategy and your prosecution seemed to be to bankrupt you. We've seen images of you going into court, uh, not looking too healthy at all. What's life like for you now? You mentioned you're spending a lot of time with your family. You're uh, promoting this book. You're putting the finishing touches on this book. You're meeting with a couple of groups. Uh, are you financially secure? Are you healthy? What's Paul Manafort's life like today? Well, I am. I'm getting. I'm healthy, and I'm getting healthier. Uh, I'm spending time with my family. I. I honestly don't dwell on the past. I almost didn't write this book because I had moved beyond it. I had faith. I kept me strong. My family kept me strong. I don't have anger in me. Um, I, I have resolve, but I don't have anger. And and so I almost didn't write the book. And so many people said you really need to tell the story. They don't know who you are, and they don't know what they did to you, which they could do to other people. And that's what persuaded me to do it. 
but I'm happy right now. I'm, I'm satisfied with my, my, my life. Uh, yeah, I, they, they did bankrupt me basically. And, uh, and that's why, you know, the book will be important and, uh, and I will do some things. I'm not going to work like I did before, uh, traveling the world, running four or five campaigns a year around the world. Um, but I, I will pick and choose some things. A lot of people want me to, uh, uh, to, to help them on, on projects of theirs and some campaigns and, and some uh, speeches. There's, a, there's been a growing interest in me coming and speaking. So I'm putting all of that together. La- last year, the first year I was out, I spent my time sort of digging through the mess. I mean, you know, I had no credit cards. I had no bank accounts. Uh, and, and getting them was very hard. And, uh, and I've pretty much gotten myself, shall we say, uh, at the ground level now, and, and uh, I'm going to gradually start to expand my activity again. But frankly, most of my attention is is focused on my family, my grandkids, my wife, who was just a champion for me the whole way, uh, and my friends. Well, uh, best of luck to you, Paul. And uh, I think it's a, a crime what happened to you. And uh, I would say that if you were a campaign advisor to Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, George Bush, whomever. And uh, I, I think it's a real shame uh, that uh, more people who are not Trump supporters haven't uh, said the same thing. Uh, thanks so much for the time this morning. And I hope we can do this again soon. I'd like to do it, Frank. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, give me a call. 1-800-848-WABC. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, that was a lot of fun. Good morrow, everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Coming up, we're going to take a look. It is the 90th anniversary of the Lindbergh baby's disappearance. We're going to get into that in uh, just about uh, 25 minutes with Michael Chaplin, a gentleman who is an adventurer, a naturalist, and an urban treasure hunter. And he has studied this Lindbergh baby issue at length. If you want to comment on the Paul Manafort discussion, you're certainly welcome to. In the meantime, uh, here's a question for you both you listening and, you know, you in the studio, how many married, married Catholic priests are there in the United States? Matt Blaze, you cared? Are you Catholic, by the way? No. No. Um, what are you, if I can ask? I'm a Jew. Oh, you're Jewish? Yes. Okay. Well, so uh, that's okay. Um, <laughs> do you have a I don't gu- know if I'm the best one to answer this question. Well, do you have a guess as to how many married Catholic priests there are in the United States today? In the entire United States, a hundred. That is actually pretty close. That is actually remarkably uh, close. So there are one hundred twenty-five thereabouts, give or take one or two, married Catholic priests in the United States today. Now you might ask yourself, well, how is it that in the Catholic Church they're able to, you know, everybody knows priests have to take a vow of celibacy. How is it that we're able to have any married Catholic priests? Shouldn't that number be, you would think, zero? Well, very interestingly, uh, there is a provision that was instituted by Pope John Paul II. Um, And around 1980, 
that gives married Episcopal priests who have converted to the Catholicism the chance to apply for ordination in the Catholic Church. Now, this is a process which can take years. Includes everything from psychological interviews to exams on Catholic theology. And in the end, you do need a special dispensation from the Pope. But I was thinking of this recently because I was listening to a a discussion about the designated hitter. You know me. I'm not for the designated hitter. I don't like the designated hitter rule. I think it dilutes baseball a little bit. But under this new collective bargaining agreement that the Players Union has agreed to with Major League Baseball, one of the things that we're seeing is a standardizing of the designated hitter rule. From now on, both the NL and the AL will have, as I understand it, a designated hitter rule. I didn't. I don't like it. I, I wish I, I, what I had said these last few years was that right now fans get to avo- uh, enjoy the best of both worlds. The American League has the designated hitter. The National League doesn't have the designated hitter. But with interleague play, you get to see both AL and NL games played under AL and NL rules. And you get, it's the best of both worlds. You get to see the DH and uh, allow older players an opportunity to stay, 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 stay in the game after they can't really play the field any longer. And you still get to see kind of that National League brand of ball with strategy. Now, now that we're having a universal DH rule and there's no DA here and no DH there, I'm wondering. Has the time come for one universal standard in the Catholic Church? Now, I happen to think, as do most Catholics, by the way, according to opinion polls, I happen to think that that priests should be able to be married. And, you know, it's very interesting. There was an interesting article I read about this one priest who he, his name's Father Josh. I believe he's a priest in uh, Texas. And he alternates between being a father, uh, driving his son to practice, and he has pictures of his uh, family in his rectory, and just hearing confession and do all, doing all the things that Catholic priests do. Now, is it right that he's able to be a father and a husband, and yet the other priests at his parish or the priests up the block aren't able to? Don't you think it's time for one standard? I think because of the priestly shortage, particularly among American priests, if you've noticed, if you've been to a Catholic mass recently, so many of the priests are from Africa, Central America, India, places like the Philippines. Don't you think it's time for one standard? In my view, that standard should be all priests should marry. But it seems incredibly unfair to allow uh, one set of priests, and I know it's only 125 of them, but to allow one set of priests to be married and have children, and there are a lot of provisions that come with that. Once your wife passes away, you're not able to be married again. You have to honor your vow of celibacy. And to allow other priests not to enjoy that same privilege. To me, it's just crazy. And, you know, I I was about to begin this discussion by saying, well, I know the Catholic Church isn't uh, isn't permitted under the uh, you know, you don't have to worry about the 14th Amendment um, 
rules regarding regarding equality that are in the Constitution, but why not? The Catholic Church is an employer. Why shouldn't the Catholic Church be subject to equal protection rules? If you're an unmarried priest and you want to be married, could you conceivably bring about a 14th Amendment case against the Catholic Church, arguing, hey, look, there's 125 priests out there that are doing the same job that I'm doing, only they get to be married and have children. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. You're also welcome to comment on the uh, Paul Manafort issue. Coming up, we're going to talk about the Lindbergh baby, which I can't wait. One of the great mysteries of all time, all time. But to me, uh, this is something that I think could help the Catholic Church. I think it could help these priests. And I think maybe you wouldn't see such a uh, you wouldn't see such an exodus of Catholics to other Protestant faiths. What say you? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. Elena is in Teaneck, New Jersey. Hello, Elena. Hello, Mr. Moreno. You can call me Frank, Elena, please. <laughs> Somehow, I don't know what my upbringing, I, I kind of give you the honors of saying Well, that that's very kind. You're Thank you. Thank you. Just you. call You're me Frank. <laughs> okay, Frank. Uh, as far as the Catholic Church, well, the Roman Catholic priests have a stipulation where they should not get married with some new... Uh, changes in as you, as you had mentioned in the 90s but there are different rights that means the catholic church has different uh i would say like styles or groupings of catholics and when you um consider the eastern catholic or the greek catholic it's known as the greek catholic the priests there can marry there right. are three different types of priests there are the monk who lives uh, in a monastic style, kind of secluded from the world and very regimented. Then there is what's called like the worldly priest. He lives in the rectory and he associates with the world on a daily basis, a, a parish and the world. And then priests are allowed to marry. And uh, there are many, many priests, Greek Catholic, that are married and have families, and they run the obligations of the church as as right. any other. That's a good point, uh, Elena. And in the places where they have a real tough time finding priests, places like the Pacific Islands or Amazonia, you're right; they do have married priests there as well. So, mm-hmm. what's your take on this, Elena? What do you think the policy of the church should be? My contention is this sort of oh, it's okay for these folks, but not those folks. I don't think that's fair, and I don't think it's a wise policy. What do you think? Well. I always say, how can an unmarried priest, which is in the Catholic Church, a a man, a male, how can he fully be effective in the community, which consists of married, unmarried children, all kinds of different lifestyles, if he himself is 
separated from all of that. Right. So it sounds like you would probably err on my end of the equation, which is allowing priests to marry, uh, even if they're not Episcopal converts or serving in Amazonia. Right. But again, I believe that they should retain the three different styles because people should have the choice. Do they want to be a monk? Do they want to be a worldly priest? Or do they want to be a married priest? And again, the hierarchy of the church only allows unmarried priests to to have a position of a bishop. Right. You can't be a bishop or more, which I also think is uh, is unfair. Uh, I think if these folks are doing such great jobs as uh, as regular regular parish priests, why shouldn't they be bishops as well? Great points, Elena. Thank you. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Three open lines if you want to jump on board. Uh, we have the other Tom in the Bronx. Hello, the other Tom. Yeah. This... Sorry, other Tom? I'm losing you. Sorry about that. Don is in Amityville. Hello, Don. Hey, Frank. Don McGrath. Uh, you might remember me, Coney Island Don. I wrote those songs for Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Hey, brother. How you doing? Doing Listen, well. I just listened to, I listened to the uh, Paul Manafort uh, uh, interview. It was fascinating. Thank fascinating. you. I, Thanks a lot. Maybe one of the best interviews I've heard, I'm telling you, in the last 10 years. Wow. Not, you're and your and your skill set as an interviewer uh, is you were well prepared. Really had had it uh, sewn up in a nice, uh, uh, concise, um, symmetrical kind of a package. I'm sure you put some time into that. So, well, I appreciate uh, that, Don. I, yeah, I've actually I've been preparing for years for this in 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 the event uh, that he was going to be able to do an interview. And I'm sorry wow. we only had an hour. I'm I'm hopeful that he'll come back because there's a lot of other areas that I would have liked to have gone into uh, both stuff that he's done previously and his views on things that are happening now. But there were a lot of things in that interview that really surprised me. For instance, I never, if you would have given me an opportunity to bet, and you say you could bet any amount of money, will Paul Manafort favor a no-fly zone over Ukraine or not? In a thousand years, I never would have bet that he was going to favor a no-fly zone. Never. Wow. Wow. Um, that I'm telling you, uh, if any, if that wasn't a, a, an iconic turnaround interview for the ages, Frank, I, I mean, I know I'm, I don't know if you want to smoke, uh, you know, Curtis Lee would say smoke up your ass, but I mean, uh, you are you, well done. Well, well done. that's and very I, nice of you, Don. Thank you. Just for the record, too, I also, inter- I was a headhunter on Wall Street for, 20, among my cornucoptic life. Uh, on Wall Street for 25 years, and I, and I play C-level types and, and junior-level types and all kinds of types in, in the financial systems and services. And this guy, Paul Manafort, we have a, we have a saying, you know, birds of a feather flock together. None, none better said than in the headhunting business where if you get a referral from somebody who's a good candidate, that person tends to be good as well. And I'm telling you, he hung out with Trump because Trump is an A candidate. He's an A candidate. You could say, we could you could send him on if you were trying to fill him at, as a CEO at uh, at Dean. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, age myself now. Dean Witter or something like that. Um, you could send him with the invoice around his neck. You know he's that good. Really, he's that good. An interview and that interview is just fascinating. I, I have so many things I want to say. One last thing. Sure. I suggest somehow you and he develop a radio show together. <laughs> 
Well, you know, thank you, Don. I actually have my hands full with the uh, on-air commitments that I have already. I'm now not only doing uh, a radio show, but a regular weekly podcast. Uh, More on that a little bit later. But I appreciate that. We'll have him back. We'll have him back. I'm not sure. Uh, We don't need more people. I don't need to be competing with more people in radio. It's bad enough that I'm forced to compete with all the uh, day laborers that want to be radio talk show hosts. 800-848-WABC. Brian is in Glenrock. Hello, Brian. Hello, how you doing? I, I, love, I love your show. Thank you. It's uh, it, it, uh, 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 um, I call about a married priest. I, sure. I heard that in, Pens- I heard in Pennsylvania that these German priests are married, and and occasionally I'll hear some like a, someone from the Church of England converting and they're married, and I'm surprised that the church didn't have them annulled. Well, no, but that's what I'm saying. This provision that was put in place by John Paul II in 1980 allows Episcopal priests, and the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church is a descendant of the Church of England. The the It allows converts of priests that were Episcopal priests to become Catholic priests and, and, and keep their marriage. Which I think I'm all I'm saying, Brian, and thanks for the call and keeping us updated on what's happening in Pennsylvania. All I'm saying is I think it's unfair. I think there should be one standard in the priestly order, just as there's now one standard in the major in Major League Baseball when it comes to designated hitters. We're going to try again for the other Tom from the Bronx. Hello there, Tom. Yeah, let's try it again, please. Okay. Uh, on the marriage and religion, uh, I don't think marriage is a religious requirement. I think they instituted that, you know. And well, you're if, right. If, if the yeah, if the reason for that is because they figure no woman, then then you won't be uh, uh you know get into a sexual perversion type thing. And but nobody can live sin free. So if uh, you know, if even if they don't get my touch with them, they. The book says everybody has sinned and fallen short. What? So that's not keep, huh? Yeah, no, go ahead. Make your, Finish your point. Yeah. So telling them they can't marry because they're afraid of sexual pervasion, which would be a sin, but, you know, that's not keeping them from, from being sinners. Well, Tom, you know, I, I agree. is keeping us from being sinners. I agree with you, but the prohibition on priests marrying has nothing to do with keeping people from being sinners, it was developed in the, and I did some research going into this segment, it was developed in the 11th century. And the re, so keep in mind, for 1100 years of the Catholic Church, priests could marry, no problem. It was done to keep priests' assets inside the church instead of being passed to their heirs. It's also done in part as a way to keep costs down because maintaining a family, as I know, believe me, can be quite expensive. Uh, that's why that was done. 800-848-WABC. We're going to talk about the Lindbergh baby in uh, just a couple of minutes. Uh, let me say hello to Michael in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Hello, Michael. Hello, and uh, congratulations on uh, a fantastic interview. Oh, thank you. Uh, it, it actually changed my mind because uh, I've been uh, in a political sense uh, for five years preparing to uh, tear Paul Manafort apart in a book. But uh, this interview is, uh, has put me, uh, well, uh, I've got to reevaluate. I'm very impressed with how he handles himself. Uh, he sounds uh, humble, uh, contemplative. And uh, very strong. Uh, 
so um, I got to think it all over. I've read a lot of books and articles uh, about him, and uh, you were able to bring out the exact opposite slant of most of the books and articles that I've read about Paul Manafort, uh, sort of painting him as the the ultimate international uh, bad guy, crook, manipulator, uh, wheeler, dealer that uh, will deal with every low-down dictator in the world, including Putin, uh, if it will put money in his pocket. Uh, no, I'm I'm saying let's reevaluate and let's give uh, let's give Frank Moreno uh, a reevaluation too. How about he only does interviews from now on? <laughs> All right, thank you, Michael. Appreciate that. I, I think that's a maybe a a reflection of his opinion on my ability to do other aspects of radio, whatever the case may be. So, wow. be it. if you have a comment on the. Um, on the the subject at hand regarding should there be one standard for marrying Catholic priests, give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. My contention is I think it's nuts that there's 125 married Catholic priests in this country and then the rest of them are not able to be married. I think either let everybody be married or let nobody be married. This um, the, the, Again, I think this is just nuts. We're doing it now in Major League Baseball. Let's do it in Major League Catholicism, right? 800-848-9222. Hannibal is in Union City. Hello, Hannibal. Frank Morano, how you doing? Well, uh, I would venture to say I'm doing pretty well. (laughs) So you're going to say you have better days. Ah, No, that's the other guy's line. Hey, listen, uh, your interview was amazing, man. I mean... Curtis Lee was always busting your chops, but the the people you get, the the, the interviews you do are, are pretty amazing. Well, uh, thank you, Hannibal. I was actually, um, uh, you know, I was actually surprised that Manafort agreed to do this. I know he's done some television. He's done Hannity and he's done some other shows, but I don't think he's done a sit down uh, hour long radio interview. And I was really humbled that he agreed to do this with me with so much going on in Ukraine. And really, I, I didn't do much. All I did was ask questions that I was interested in and let him talk. Uh, and, and thanks for the compliment, Hannibal. I, I was really surprised at many of the different things that he said. For instance, I was somebody that always thought that Manafort was responsible for softening the Russia language in the 2016 uh, GOP platform, and I didn't have a problem with it. I, again, I'm not a Republican, so what business is it of mine, what uh, what the Republicans have in their platform? I didn't have a problem with it, and I agreed with it. I didn't have a problem with Manafort doing it. He made, he made a pretty convincing case that he had nothing to do with that. I thought his comments on a no-fly zone and Putin were um, shocking. And I also thought his comments on Epstein were interesting as well. Uh, Renee is in Queens. Hello, Renee. Yes, um, I hear you speaking so much about the Catholic Church. What about the evangelicals? Because in the evangelical circles, many of the people who are in the ministry, they're called to a specific work. They don't call and appoint themselves and say, oh, I'd like to be a bishop, oh, I'd like to be a elder, or I'd like to be a uh, missionary. They're called to a work, and that's where the title that that person walk in that ministry is more effective. But so what am I to do with that information, Renee? What do you mean? 
Because you're making it seem like the Catholic Church is only the church. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, 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 I'm not. Maybe I shouldn't say it like that. No, maybe you're not doing that, but it just seems like in this uh, society, it's like you're not a Catholic. You know, it's like you're missing something. No, They got evangelical churches. They got... I, I totally I, I get that, uh, Renee. Look, my wife is evangelical and my uh, my mother-in-law is evangelical. My, uh, seven of my eight siblings-in-law are evangelical Christians. I'm not uh, paying short shrift to evangelicals. But right now there's no debate, as far as I know, within the evangelical community about marital rules for their ministers. There is quite a debate in um in the catholic community about marital rules for priests and the interesting thing is you know one group that doesn't want to change these rules of celibacy it, according to at least one article i read it's the married priests themselves the married priests themselves don't think they should change the marriage rules how about that you want to talk about hubris you want to talk about one set of rules for me but not for thee I mean, I guess these guys like their status as religious unicorns. David's in Pennsylvania. Hello, David. Hi, Frank. How you doing? No, it's interesting you bring this up because my uh, 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 great-great-grandfather was a Maronite priest. um, And um, there are orders of, I guess maybe we saw that in your research, the Maronite uh, order of priests do... I mean, they, I think if they're married, they, they can become a priest, and as long as they're married before becoming priest. I'm not sure what the ruling is, but um, no, it's just interesting because my name is, is symbolic of means priest that you had a the, you know, family of the priests, and um, but that's I don't know it's the only order that I know of uh, that and uh, that's, that are Catholics that are in Lebanon. You know, that's where the manner uh, right of uh, priests I think uh, originate and exists. There are some in the United States. There are a couple uh, Maronite churches, but but it's not. Very, I think it's a very limited, very small hmm. number. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, well, that's interesting, David. I did not know that actually. Thank you, Larry's in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Uh, Frank. Yeah. I just I'd like to make two observations uh, about this uh, uh, priest issue. First, I believe it should stay the same, and and. Uh, and, the, and well, the argument against it is that it's kind of ironic that you call somebody father who's not a father. Okay, but that's that's be that as it may, that irony should remain because I think it's a good shelter for people who are homosexuals because the Catholicism doesn't tolerate homosexuality. Uh, I mean, as, as, in, in strict theological terms, and as far as Scripture goes, so it's a good shelter for people. Otherwise. Uh, if they didn't have this shelter, they would have to, uh, you know, be conspicuously single, and they would have to uh, probably admit at some well, point I, I, Larry, that they're gay. I, Larry, I, that strikes me as really bizarre. I mean, you're saying that uh, because priests are celibate, it's a good place for homosexual men, gay men, to hide their sexuality? Not Yes, because it's a neutral – because uh, priests, if priests are sexually I, neutral, I, I, I can, they don't have to define themselves yeah, uh, and be subject to, to stigmatization. Sometimes people don't like to admit uh, what uh, they uh, are. Larry, they I, private, I think we'll, we'll, have to, individuals. we'll have to agree to disagree on that one. One, because I don't think the same stigma exists about being gay in America today that maybe it did 50 or 60 years ago. 
well on a, you can't speak for pe- how people feel on no, a I can't. level. No, I can't. No, I can't. But I also don't think that's great for the priesthood. I don't think we want people becoming priests uh, so as to hide their their sexuality. No, that's not the issue. The issue is the fact is they are who they are. And if they would like to pursue uh, a non-sinful life in a sexually neutral lifestyle, they should have that option. I think it's a beautiful thing, actually. All right, fair enough. Uh, did you have another quick comment before we get to Michael Chaplin here? Yes, I did. I, 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 I wanted to say that these judges, like, like, like the judge that sent Manafort right to jail, they're all violating the... Uh, the the the, uh, what, uh, the the bail clause. I think it's the Sixth Amendment. No bail, which means they they which means that you can't revoke bail either unless the person's in danger. They're all violating the Constitution. These judges, and that includes the January six people that you mentioned as uh, well. All right, Larry. I want to get in at least one call here because no one has ever seen you and Charles from Queens in the same place at the same time. So we're going to see if you are in fact Charles from Queens. Hello there, Charles. Yes, I'm Charles from Queens, not Larry from wherever. Well, all right. I think you said, anyways, what I want to say is you might recall, Frank, that I recently complimented you on being a phenomenal interviewer. It was really gratifying to hear several other people concur with my opinion. You really are, Frank, a phenomenal interviewer. It's smooth flowing. It's like, really, you're fantastic. Now, but what I want to say regarding what's his name, Paul uh, Manafort. What amazed me the most while listening to the whole interview, several things that were very impressive, but the fact that he's just moving on, and I noticed this in the way he talked, there's no anger. I mean, that great men are like that. Otherwise, you wouldn't go on with your life and make a new life for yourself. It, it, it doesn't say much for me because I'd probably spend the rest of my life speaking about the injustice that was done to me if I was Paul Manafort. But that was impressed me, and great people do that. For example, I recently read a biography of Paul Reichman, um, I'm sure you, Frank, would know mm-hmm. who he was, right? From Olympia, New York. And, uh, you know, he was the seventh richest in the world at one point in 1990, before, before the bankruptcy. And when, when somebody was with him in a taxi when they were going through Manhattan after he had lost it all. And it just like it never happened. Like, like he didn't look at the buildings. Oh, my God, I used to own 10%. He built 10% of Manhattan. No, he just went on as if with his new life. I don't know. You've got to be a really great person. I, I think it was uh, an African-American. I think uh, he, he, who invented the, the boil weevil or something, the uh, cotton gin or something. Right. It, was it uh, Eli Whitney? Eli Whitney, yeah, thanks. So what I heard, I read once, I don't know if it's true, but something like he, he was very wealthy. Uh, stock market, whatever it was, and he lost it all. And I think it was him. And, some, and his wife came in or something during while he was teaching and said to him, you, you lost it all. Okay, he said, I, I heard you, and just went on. Wow. I, I don't know how people can be like that. It just amazes you me. Know, Obviously, it was like that. It's a good point, Charles. Thank you. And it's similar. Nikki the Greek, the, one of the world's most famous gamblers, uh, one of, probably the best-known craps player of all time, and he used to play for millions, millions, used to bet millions. Near the end of his life, he was broke, near broke anyway. And he was playing $5 limit draw poker in California. And he was asked by a fellow player how he could once play for millions and now be playing for such small stakes. And Nikki the Greek, and maybe this is an indication of gambling addiction more than anything else, he just said, hey, it's action, isn't it?
And uh, I guess there's something to be learned there. Hey, speaking of action, if you're looking for action, there's a lot of action to be had right here in New York City or whatever city you happen to live in. Uh, I'm going to talk with uh, the author of The Urban Treasure Hunter, Michael Chaplin, who uh, has published a great guide on how to find, unearth, and identify valuable artifacts. But in doing this research, he became a student of the Lindbergh kidnapping. We're going to get into this in a big way straight ahead. WABC. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Frank Marano. 
and that the uh, kidnapper used to uh, live up in the Bronx and go to Hunter Island. And there, there's a uh, picnic grove or old picnic groves that are overgrown now that uh, it was suggested that uh, Hauptman may have uh, buried the money somewhere. All right, before there. we get and to the... That was a good project. Before we get to the ransom and where the money might be, what you you mentioned the the kidnapper's name there. What does history record as having happened? What do people? Uh, what what's the official story? Okay, in uh, 1932, that's when the uh, kidnapping uh, took place in Hopewell, New Jersey. Uh, somebody with a ladder climbed up to uh, little Charlie's bedroom, stole him, left a note on the uh, radiator. And uh, warning the family that uh, not to tell anybody, but he wants fifty thousand dollars ransom, and that uh, he would uh, be in contact to uh, figure out how payment would come over. In 1934, uh, all the bills were rec- the, the serial numbers were recorded, and uh, somebody and they took a lot of the bills were uh, gold backs. In other words. New, uh, the United States was on the gold standard, so the bills were called gold certificates. And uh, what happened was, in 1933, they took uh, uh, the bills out of circulation, and they paid a lot of the uh, the ransom in gold backs. But they also, as I said, recorded the serial numbers. And uh, when they uh, found uh, Hauptman, it was by him paying with a gold back in a gas station. And then the, uh, they, everybody, all well, the businesses had been alerted to watch out for these gold backs because they were, they were taken out of circulation. So the uh, attendant or the person pumping gas uh, wrote down the license number on the $10 gold back that uh, Halpman paid with. And uh, that was located at a bank and they called up the DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles, who's, who, who uh, has this license number, and it turned out to be Halpman. They picked him up in 1934. Uh, they swooped in on him on his, while he was in his car, and then uh, they tried to uh, get him to admit that, you know, he did uh, the kidnapping. He wouldn't say anything. And uh, then in 1936, he was put on trial. And uh, found guilty of kidnap, and that was a uh, crime uh, that was punishable by death. He was given the electric chair. And uh, since that time, there's still $31,000 missing of that ransom money. So you mentioned Hauptman. Uh, the, the, the person that was convicted of this crime was Bruno Richard Hauptman. He was a German immigrant. And um, so you, just so folks know, and the record's clear, the Lindberghs paid the ransom, and yet the right. kidnappers still killed the baby? That's correct. And as a matter of fact, that's one of the things that angered the public so much was that, you know, even though the Limburgs were negotiating in good faith and everything like that, they figured out that the baby has probably been killed like two weeks like after the uh, kidnapping. And uh, the ransom, the kidnapping took place on March 2nd, and the, uh, the ransom was paid in May, and they found the baby in, in April that, that was dead 
and uh, they, the coroner decided that it had been how, however long that it was a, the baby was killed, like two weeks after the kidnapping, and that uh, they, uh, you know, the public was, was was outraged that this happened, and uh, you know, the uh, people that uh, conducted the investigation presented their evidence at the trial, including that they had found fourteen thousand six hundred dollars in ransom money. Uh, hidden in uh, Altman's garage where he lived in the Bronx on Needham Avenue, and that uh, he, uh, he, he, you know, he, he stayed very stoic about it, and uh, he claimed that it belonged to another German that brought it to him and went back to Germany and died of tuberculosis. Hmm. Um, it's, it's an involved story, but the point, one, one of the, I think one of the major points that convinces me that, that Hauptmann did it was that the, uh, one of the rails of the ladder is uh, at the trial, it was shown that uh, that came from Hauptman's attic, uh, from the flooring. He took a piece of wood and uh, he nailed that to the ladder. It showed that the nail holes, the forensically, you know, were uh, from the attic, as a, on the rail were from the attic. And that was pretty convincing to me, you know. And all, all the while, you know, the Lindbergh family, they were suffering. And, uh, it, uh, you know, the idea of a conspiracy sort of like, you know, shocks me because I'd never heard of that until you mentioned it when I first heard about it. And that uh, Lindbergh, uh, well, it's a sad story, put it that way. That's for sure. And uh, we're talking with Michael Chaplin. He's the author of the book, The Urban Treasure Hunter. Talking about this, um, you know, this the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby. And we are going to have some people that buy into some of these conspiracy theories that deviate from the official far, uh, the official story. So um, your interest in this began when you got a tip about where that ransom money might be. So nobody has recovered 90 years later. Nobody has recovered over thirty thousand dollars worth of this money. I don't know that. I can't say that for sure, because when I first arrived at Hunter Island, I met like a, a German in his 80s, and he gave me a tour. And he said when they first caught Halpman, the place was filled with people digging the island up. <laughs> I don't know. But the point is, too, that if you find that money, you can't keep it because that's, that's you know, the FBI has a claim to that money. And... Uh, I always thought if I ever found it, which I never have, was that like I would get like some sort of a documentary made about it. It would be interesting, you know, and turn the money over like you're supposed to. But uh, I, I can't guarantee that nobody ever found it. Although, you know, I haven't heard about anybody, you know, cashing any of the bills, you know, with the recorded serial numbers. Did you are you still looking for it or have you sort of thrown in the towel? I haven't, I haven't thrown in the towel. You know, I just need some uh, new leads. Since I've been searching, I've found that it's very interesting because this German picnic grove where the German immigrants used to go to, they used to leave uh, their picnic uh, materials. They didn't have disposables then with garbage pails all around to put things. They used to bury them in containers. So since doing this, I found uh, 14 buried containers containing dishes, silverware, Pots, dishes, dishes, you know, all the things that you need for your weekly picnic. And uh, so, you know, there's always a chance that you can find something. Uh, 
Uh, I mean, I, I found things that are out of it, too. I found an Uzi machine gun, which I turned over to the police. And I didn't go to, back to that spot for a year and a half. So I don't want anybody watching, you know, for who's coming back. So, you know, there, there's, Hunter Island has a very interesting uh, history. So, uh, there's the old Hunter Mansion there. You know, you can find all sorts of things. So if the money is still out there somewhere, it's probably in Hunter Island. Is that the best guess that folks have? Well, since Halpman was a regular uh, visitor there, he was a canoeist or a kayaker, an outdoors adventurer, adventurer. He may have, it's a good bet that he may have hid the money there. He, he secreted $14,600 in his garage. So I don't, I don't know where he may have else put it, or he maybe had a confederate that worked with him. It's, uh, you know, up in the air, but it's, uh, as I say, you know, when they first caught him, everybody ran out there and started digging the place up. So maybe the money had been taken already. I, I do not know. Did you see the um, the miniseries? I think it was on HBO, The Plot Against America. Charles Lindbergh's a character in that film, in that miniseries. No, I missed that. Yeah, it's it's sort of a, a, an alternative history uh, that, that wonders what life would have been like if Charles Lindbergh ran for president and beat FDR in uh, in 1940. It's pretty interesting. I'd be curious to get your take on it if you if you do end up uh, end up seeing it. Now, uh in terms of the broader issue of finding treasure like the Lindbergh baby ransom, you mean mm-hmm. to tell me you wrote a whole book about this. It's the Urban Treasure Hunter, very interesting. You can actually find honest to god treasure in cities like New York. Yeah. As a matter of fact, New York City has a tradition of treasure hunters Treasure hunters since the 1890s. There were these two guys, William Calver and Reginald Bolton, that uh, they, up until that time, nobody was going around digging and looking for things. So they were finding all these uh, Hessian encampment sites, Indian, uh, uh, prehistoric Indian relics that were, you know, where, where the Indians lived. Um, and the newspaper picked up on it. And they called them the explorers, and they were very popular. And, you know, they, they loved hearing about what they were finding. And uh, New York City, it uh, has such a diverse uh, selection of, of different type of things to find. You could look for caches like the Lindbergh uh, stash. You could look for, uh, you know, people go to the beach and they walk around like a vacuum cleaner and they find gold. They do pretty good. Um you can find Revolutionary War things. I found cannonballs. Uh, there, there's uh, a lot of things that you can find. Old bottle dumps, you know, where you could find bottles from the Civil War era or earlier. Um, that that That's done all the time. A friend of mine, he's a plumber. He found $25,000 under a bathtub in Goldbacks, actually. Wow. Uh, Right. He was uh, reaching for a valve to shut off the water so the house could be demolished in in, uh, in Brooklyn. And uh, he found these leather pouches filled with old $20 gold back. Now, they weren't Lindbergh money, you know, a ransom, <laughs> ransom money. So he got to keep that because it wasn't tied to a kidnapping. Well, he said, I'm not giving it to my boss. <laughs> I, you know, I, you know I'm not, I don't go too much into people, what, what they find, you know, just, you know, okay, that's good, you know, and you know, let them have their privacy. You write in your book here that you were first interested in exploring this, looking for treasure in uh, New York City by the big, big price of 
precious metals back around 1980. You write that gold was about uh, $800 an ounce. Is that right? It was the price of gold and silver that led you to want to do this? Well, for me, it's not so much what what I find. I, I, I you know people say to me, well, do you collect this? Do you collect that? I collect experiences, and I think treasure hunting gives you a, a wide range of experiences, and it's good to find things. You know, it like motivates you to keep going. Oh no, my uncle, uh, my uncle Steve, he spends all his free time doing this. Whenever he's not working, this is all he's working on. And uh, you know, he lost his wife a few years ago. I, if he didn't have this as a hobby, I don't know what he'd be doing. Uh, and uh, I suspect there's a lot of folks that are looking at the price of gold at nineteen hundred dollars an ounce right now and thinking, "Hell, maybe I'll try my uh, my hand at uh, at doing some treasure hunting in in whatever city they happen to be living." Living in. Hey, so obviously we want people to buy your book. It's called The uh, Urban Treasure Hunter. But sure. can, can anyone do this, or do you need some sort of special training in your view? Well, okay. If you if you get a metal detector, get the book to go with it. It tells you how, where, and you know what to do. And uh, you know, read the, read the uh, you know the reviews on Amazon. You know, and you'll you'll see that what people get out of it. Um, it's uh, anybody can do it. Although in New York City now, I, I had a first edition of the book that came out in 1993 that was published by a uh, metal detector company, and right after that, New York City came out with a, a permit law. So you have to have a, a permit oh. to get past the Department of Parks. It's free. It tells you what you're supposed to do, you know, and what you're not allowed to do. We can go. Very but, quickly, uh, yeah. very quickly, Michael, because I have to break. What, what's the coolest thing you've ever found in 40 years of doing this? A career as a writer. I'm not <laughs> kidding. No, because that's gotten me jobs. That's gotten me. Uh, Fair enough. No, honestly. Uh, I believe it. I believe it. I, uh, the book is uh, The Urban Treasure Hunter. Its author is Michael Chaplin. Michael, thanks. We'll talk again. Cheers. All the best. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion on the Lindbergh baby or on treasure hunting, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Love this song. This is The Other Side of Midnight. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing, uh, just join the Facebook group to search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. In addition to this show, which we not only hope you listen to live every day, but if you miss any portion of it, subscribe to the podcast. You could subscribe by searching uh, The Other Side of Midnight, uh, whatever podcast app you want to go to, or go to wabcradio.com, see the podcast for all the great shows. I have launched a, a new podcast at the, uh, at the direction of management called The Racket Report, where I explore the world of organized crime and some of the mysteries related to organized crime. And one of the people that I... Not, my latest guest 
in a podcast which is going to be released today, it may already be published, is a gentleman named Christian Cipollini, who, uh, Christian Cipollino, excuse me, who is an expert and a historian on, of all things, Murder, Inc. So I asked Christian, what exactly is Murder, Inc.? Murder, Inc. was made up of guys that were from both Jewish and Italian backgrounds, and they were selected essentially to insulate the bosses and to take orders to enforce. The mob didn't exist to hurt people. The mob existed to make money. So it was a really interesting discussion. Uh, I learned a lot, and uh, I think you will too, if you listen to the latest edition of The Racket Report. Uh, Again, you can search The Racket Report on any podcast platform, or you can, um, you know, you can actually just uh, go to wabcradio.com. Jeff is in Brooklyn. Hello, Jeff. Hi there. I wanted to talk about the Lindbergh thing. Lindbergh, before Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic, there were at least 80 people who crossed the Atlantic by airplane before him. The first uh, person or people to cross was there was a naval uh, seaplane in 1919 led by Commander uh, Albert Reed. He left from uh, uh, Jamaica Bay, went to Massachusetts and crossed to Portugal, and he had a crew of six people with him on an airplane uh, that was in uh, Ju- uh, May of, of uh, 1919. And in June of 1919, the first civilians crossed that was a uh, from Nova Scotia to Ireland. And that was a guy by the name of Arthur Brown. And I forgot who his co-pilot was. So that was way before Lindbergh went across. But Lindbergh had all the pizzazz and he had PR behind him. So he was given a lot and I think he crossed with air, with used instruments. He was the first guy to use instruments when he crossed. So he got a lot of publicity. These other guys you don't even know about, do you? That, that's true. I did not know about that. That is absolutely true. By the way, uh, just a quick update on um, a follow-up from yesterday. We had a caller, Charlie in Hell's Kitchen, call in and uh, make comments about some various things. And he was discussing the Vietnam War. And then a subsequent caller called in and and thanked Charlie for his service. Now, Charlie then called back and spoke to Molly and said he never served in Vietnam. So we will be denouncing Charlie on Friday uh, for a stolen valor issue, much like uh, Connecticut Senator Dick Blumenthal. So uh, we're not going to let Charlie or anybody else get away with that. A whole lot of stuff to get to. Who's being canceled? Everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, help control the... Pet population, make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, we could do a, a daily feature called the Cancel Culture Chronicles because every day there's a collection of people that are being canceled or attempted to be canceled for something. 
And uh, I want to go through a few of them very quickly here. And uh, you can make your own judgments about whether they deserve to be canceled or not. But at least two of these have have repercussions for our area here in the in the Northeast. But it goes far beyond that. Let me begin with Newark, New Jersey. You remember the former Newark mayor, Sharp James? Now, Sharp James was an interesting guy, is an interesting guy. He uh, was the mayor. He was also a state senator. He was a professor. I've interviewed him, interviewed him. And in 2008, he was prosecuted by Chris Christie. And he was convicted of five counts of fraud by a federal jury and was subsequently sentenced to 27 months in prison. He went to prison, wrote a book about his time in prison. I interviewed him after he came out of prison. prison, The book was called um, Political Prisoner, just like Paul Manafort's book. Isn't that funny? I didn't think of that until just now. They both picked the same title for their book. And um, in Manafort's case, I haven't read the book yet, but he seems to imply that it was Bob Mueller's team that was doing the political imprisoning in Sharp James's case, he seems to imply that it was Chris Christie and his team that was doing the political imprisoning. But anyway, so he was the mayor of Newark for 20 years, a very popular mayor of Newark. He was a member of the state Senate for about 10 years, a powerhouse in Democratic Party politics. I believe to this day he's the only person ever to beat Cory Booker in an election. I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. So Sharp James wanted to mount a political comeback. Now, I got to tell you, I don't know what it is. There's just something about political comeback attempts that I find myself rooting for the person to make a comeback. Now, that includes both people that I like like Buddy Cienci, the former mayor of Providence, Rhode Island, before he died, like uh, Jim Traficant, the former congressman from Ohio, before he died, and people that I don't like. Um, oh, and certainly Vito Pacella, somebody that I do like a lot, made a great political comeback. But um, even people that I don't like, like uh, Elliot Spitzer and uh, Andrew Cuomo. I've never voted for Andrew Cuomo in my life, ever. But there's a part of me that's saying... Gee, wouldn't it be something if this guy makes a comeback? Now, again, I still couldn't bring myself to vote for Andrew Cuomo. And if you look at the the information that came out of the controller's office yesterday, the amount of deception that was told from the governor's office to the public about the nursing home scandal, that should disqualify him from ever holding office again. But there's still something about a political comeback story. There's something cinematic about it. Just like with Nixon, you know, by the way, Pat Buchanan, who I, I spoke to uh, yesterday and uh, I'm I'm working on getting back on the show. He wanted to tape an interview today, but I could not bring myself to be awake <laughs> at, at 11 o'clock this morning. I, I said, Pat, I love you. But if the choice is the th- four hours a day that I get to sleep uninterrupted or interviewing you about the Russia Ukraine situation I'm choosing the sleep I'll read your column and I'll just I'll just I'll I'll, I'll summarize your thoughts but anyway uh, he wrote a great book about Nixon's comeback in 1968 called appropriately the greatest comeback so sharp James wanted to make a political comeback and he wanted to again keep in mind this was the mayor of Newark for 20 years and he wanted to do a a, a Marion Barry style comeback and he wanted to run 
for city council in Newark. And uh, our colleague, David Wildstein, who does a great job as the host of the New Jersey Globe Power Hour, uh, has been chronicling this on their website, NewJerseyGlobe.com. He wants to run for city council in Newark in the upcoming nonpartisan elections in May. Wouldn't it be interesting if all elections were nonpartisan? I wish we had nonpartisan elections here in New York, I'll tell you. And yesterday... He filed petitions, collected more than 2,000 signatures for an at-large city council seat, and his petitions were not accepted by the city clerk. They issued a letter, the city clerk's office issued a letter to the former mayor, citing a court order from 2008 that bars Sharp James from holding public office again. Um... James's lawyer pushed back. He said that uh, he said during this court hearing, they've now sued. He said during this court hearing on Tuesday that although the court order does not does block the former Newark mayor from holding office, barring his eligibility to be certified as a candidate and to express his political views impedes his First Amendment rights. That's a pretty weak argument, I think, honestly. I'm not a lawyer, but I think that is a pretty weak argument. Like, Obviously, you can't run for an office that you're not eligible for. So ju- the judge disagreed. The judge did not allow him on the ballot. Now, I have to tell you, now, I don't know what could have been done differently because this is what a, condic- a condition of his conviction was. But I think if the people of Newark, New Jersey, want to elect Sharp James to the city council, they should have that right. And if they don't want to vote for him because he's a convicted felon, well, then I think that's appropriate as well. Leave it up to the voters. It shouldn't be this judicial decree from 2008 which stops the voters in 2021 from making their voice heard on who they want to represent them in the city council. Comment as you see fit, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Staying in the state of New Jersey, uh, this time moving to Bayonne, which is in Hudson County. Some people claim it is the sixth borough of the city of New York. The name of Russian President Vladimir Putin has been covered on Bayonne's September 11th teardrop memorial. The 175-ton bronze and glass memorial at the former Military Ocean Terminal was a gift from the Russian people and designed by a Georgian artist. Putin attended the groundbreaking in Bayonne, New Jersey in 2005, and his name is included on two plaques written in both English and Russian. Its formal name is To the Struggle Against World Terrorism. Mayor Jimmy Davis said he ordered Putin's name to be covered because of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Quote, I want to be clear, we will never take down this monument. We have, however, taken steps to cover the name of Putin due to his recent actions against the people of Ukraine. 
I directed this action be taken so that we don't um, deface this honoring of the victims and families of September 11th. And we show our support with the people of Ukraine. I got to tell you, I have a major problem with this. And I'm not defending Putin's actions in Ukraine at all. But when they accepted this gift from Russia and President Putin, when Putin came to the groundbreaking ceremony, they didn't accept this under the condition, oh, we're only accepting this under the under the condition that you don't invade any other countries. And Putin's done a lot of other bad things. What about the Georgian invasion in 2008? They were able to keep that up. Uh, keep his name up during that. What about the Crimean annexation of 2014? That was just fine. That didn't merit covering anybody's names. But it's now the Ukrainian invasion that all of a sudden is paramount. No, to me, this is taking down monuments, monuments all over again. I don't think they should cover. Um, uh, they should cover Putin's name. Putin did not give them the monument on the basis that his name could be covered up. I don't think that's right at all. If you want to put up a victim, you know, a victim's memorial in Bayonne, New Jersey or anywhere else commemorating the victims in Ukraine and the Russian victims in the Donbass region of the Ukrainian military, I'm all for that. But this whole notion of being able to erase uh, people from monuments based on their behavior after that monument doesn't sit right with me at all. We covered this when we talked about all of the Nazi monuments that are up in the United States. There are monuments to Nazi collaborators all over this country, all over the state. They're in the city. Now, Enrique Patain, for instance, in New York City, was honored with a parade, a ticker tape parade. And we honored Henri Philippe Patain because of his heroism during World War I. Does the fact that he became a Nazi collaborator mean we should we should forget about his prior contributions? No, I don't think it does. Learn from it, use it as a teaching tool. I don't think we should pull up his plaque any more than I think we should cover Putin's. To me, it's just, it strikes me as so wrong. It's like all these colleges and universities that rushed to take their honorary degrees away from Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump. No, you don't accept an honorary degree thinking it could be taken away. It's nonsense. I don't like it at all. Comment as you see fit. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. And then we go to the final degree of cancel culture. And this has to do with my favorite former congresswoman from Hawaii, a woman I'm strongly considering supporting for president in 2024, Tulsi Gabbard. Um, what's treason? What is treason? When we think of treason, it's a pretty serious thing. It is one of the most serious crimes that a citizen of any country can commit. In fact, it might be the gravest crime that a citizen can commit. It is one of the few crimes other than murder that you can actually still 
kill someone for. You can actually execute someone for treason. I mean, think about it. What else other than murder, there's very few crimes other than murder, can you execute someone for? It's permitted under the Constitution. The framers of the Constitution were so concerned about the temptation to throw around the term treason willy-nilly by by depicting political dissent as treason, that they chose to define and limit exactly how this crime could be applied. By the way, uh, the new rock star of the week, Vladimir Zelensky, you know what he's doing with respect to treason right now? Poroshenko, his predecessor that he ran against, he's currently trying him for treason. Poroshenko, who you see on all the news channels now, in the streets, fighting for his country and good for him for doing it, he's on trial. Zelensky is trying him for treason because that's what they do in Ukraine. The winners love prosecuting the losers. So anyway, they chose to define and limit exactly how the crime of treason could be applied. This is what's in the Constitution. They inserted this limiting paragraph into the Constitution itself, reflecting both the gravity and the temptation to abuse accusations of treason. This is what it says, Article 3, Section 3. Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort, no person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or on confession in open court. That's, by the way, what saved Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr was tried for treason, and that's why um, he didn't get convicted. They didn't have two witnesses. Uh, That was the only crime in the Constitution to be defined that way so explicitly. It was a big deal. The founders knew they that we were going to have idiotic politicians that were seeking to use rhetorical exaggeration. One of those idiotic per- politicians is, of course, my least favorite member of the U.S. Senate, Willard Mitt Romney. Willard Mitt Romney, who I take great pride in the fact that I have never voted for, is... Now out there, among other people, but he's the most overt example of this, saying the following. Tulsi Gabbard is parroting false Russian propaganda. Her treasonous lies may well cost lives. Now, do I need to remind you that Willard Mitt Romney is someone who skipped the Vietnam War, not because he had any problem with it, like a lot of the people that were out there protesting against the war. No, he would actually go to pro-war protests out there in support of the Vietnam War while dodging the draft himself four times, four times. Four-time draft-dodging, son-of-a-rich-politician, investment banker, neocon, Willard Mitt Romney, who skipped the Vietnam War after protesting in favor of it, instead opting to send other Americans to fight and die. And then he justified the fact, by the way, that all five of his sons avoided military service on the grounds that helping him get elected was their service. He actually said that. 
that his sons working to get him elected, that was their service. That's why they didn't need to uh, serve in the military. This disgrace actually has the temerity to call Tulsi Gabbard treasonous. Tulsi Gabbard, who volunteered to fight in the Iraq war and who is now a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army Reserves. Um, she is a decorated active member of the United States military. And Willard Mitt Romney, who has done whatever he can to use his connections and his wealth to avoid serving himself and keep his sons from serving, says she's treasonous. Well, what did she do that's so treasonous? It has to do with this Twitter video. Uh, You might have heard about this. I covered this a little bit in my interview with Aaron Mate last week. But it has to do with this, uh, this, this evidence that came out when Victoria Newland was testifying before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in which she talked about bioweapons labs. And uh, Tulsi Gabbard went on Twitter. She posted a two-minute video. Here's a portion of it. Here are the undeniable facts. There are 25 to 30 U.S.-funded biolabs in Ukraine. According to the U.S. government... These biolabs are conducting research on dangerous pathogens. Ukraine is in an active war zone with widespread bombing, artillery, and shelling. And these facilities, even in the best of circumstances, could easily be compromised and release these deadly pathogens. Now, like COVID, these pathogens know no borders. If they are inadvertently or purposely breached or compromised, they will quickly spread all throughout Europe, the United States, and the rest of the world, causing untold suffering and death. So in order to protect the American people, the people of Europe, the people around the world, these labs need to be shut down immediately, and the pathogens that they hold need to be destroyed. Instead of trying to cover this up, the Biden-Harris administration needs to work with Russia, Ukraine, NATO, the U.N. to immediately implement a ceasefire for all military action in the vicinity of these labs until they're secured and these pathogens are destroyed. In addition to all this, the U.S. funds around 300 biolabs around the world who are engaging in dangerous research, including gain-of-function, similar to the lab in Wuhan, where COVID-19 may have originated from. Now, after realizing how dangerous and vulnerable these labs are, they should have all been shut down two years ago, but they haven't. Now, this is not a partisan political issue. The administration and Congress need to act now for the health and well-being of every American and every person on this planet. Now, that's the entirety of the video. Um, And thanks to Molly for grabbing that. So she posted that on Sunday night. She said something completely indisputable and undeniable. Now, the U.S. government, through Victoria Nuland itself, is admitting this. And nobody contested. She did not say there are bioweapons labs in Ukraine. She didn't say either, either one's funded by the U.S. or anyone else. What she did say is that there are labs in Ukraine in which dangerous pathogens, as you just heard, are being cultivated and stored, and that it's reckless in the extreme for the U.S. or Ukraine 
not to have secured or disposed them when Russian troops were massed on the Ukrainian border. Now, I mean, can you disagree with that? I mean, there are a bunch of Russian troops about to invade our country. Well, let's uh, let's keep this anthrax and this all these toxins and all this dangerous biopathogens. Let's keep it right, right where it is so that the Russians can have it when they invade. I mean, to me, what she's saying, it's not Russian propaganda. It's common sense. And yet Willard Mitt Romney gets to go on Twitter, among others. John Brennan did something similar and others. Uh, Hillary Clinton referred to her as a Russian asset previously. But Willard Mitt Romney gets to go on Twitter and say Tulsi Gabbard is parroting false Russian propaganda. He doesn't say what's false. He didn't point out anything that's inaccurate in anything she said. But he then adds her treasonous lies may well cost lives. Please, this guy makes me absolutely sick. Absolutely sick. 800-848-WABC. Comments as you see fit on anything we have covered thus far. Four open lines. Now's the time. 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 77 WABC. This is the other side of midnight. A couple of quick notes here. A uh, And I'll get to your calls in just a minute. Still one, two, three, four open lines if you want to jump on board. 800-848-9222. I, I love this story. And this goes hand in hand with the story of finding treasure that we did um, last hour with Michael Chaplin. A dad, Tony Wilding of Wilding of North Wales, has found... A two-pound, four-ounce meteorite in a farmer's field after searching for it for 18 months. How cool is that? How cool is that? This guy's 38 years old. He found a two-pound, four-ounce meteorite worth up to $130,000 in a farmer's field after looking for it for a year and a half. And it's worth $130,000. How that is neat. He's hoping to get the rock certified to find out exactly how much it's worth. That that $130,000 is an estimate. But um, he said, I was in my back garden having a midnight cigarette when I noticed the sky lighting up above my head. I looked up to see a low-flying ball of fire with two swirling trails of smoke. It got brighter as it approached my house at about twice its height. It was so low you could have kicked a football in the air and it would have reached it. As it crossed over, it extinguished within a few seconds. There was no noise. It just disappeared, leaving only the trails of smoke. And so then he proceeded to look for this for 18 months. 
and he finally found it. And now it's worth approximately, we don't know exactly how much, $130,000. I love stories like that. Absolutely love stories like that. Now, lastly, my friend Butch reached out to me the other day. I I like Butch a lot. He used to work here many, many years ago. Nice guy. I've known him. He's been in public relations. He's worked in pro sports. And he's a nice guy. A very nice guy. But he's one of those guys where there's always something wrong, right? Uh, hey, Butch, how are you? Oh, well, you know, uh, you know, I, my, my these are hypothetical examples. My brother just got laid off, and now I have to take my brother and his wife into my house, and we're having a tough time paying the bills. Oh, sorry, Butch. Oh, hey, Butch, how are you? Well, not great. I just got diagnosed with cancer. It doesn't look good. He, you know, he, he's like a human Eeyore. Like, I understand why Curtis says on the weekends that he doesn't like people saying, how are you? Because Butch will actually tell you how he is. Now, what, what Curtis doesn't understand, or he acts like he doesn't understand, is when people say, how are you, Curtis? They're not really wanting an answer. It's just a greeting. It's almost an extension of hello. It's uh, buongiorno, como stai? It's, it's, it's just being polite. Uh, no one wants to hear how you are. So Butch is one of these guys that he'll always tell you how he is, and he's never doing great. Like, you'll, you'll never say, Butch, how are you? And I'll say, great, never better. Things are going so well. So Butch asked me to, um, but again, a nice guy, and from what I can tell, very skilled at all the jobs that I've ever known him in. So Butch asked me to recommend him for a job, right? I, I always, it's always me. It's always me. It's, I almost thought when he asked me that maybe he had heard the segment that we did on this and he was doing it as a joke. He did not, and it, and it was not a joke. So he asked me to recommend him for a job. I call uh, this friend of mine. I give my Larry David-style recommendation. And he goes for the interview, goes well, and he's got to call me to debrief. I said, all right, Butch, I'll call this person and find out how it went on there. And meanwhile, this is exactly what I have time to do with, with all of my free time. So then um, he, he's I, I saying, okay, well, h- how's everything going, Butch? And he says, well, Frank, I got to tell you. If I don't get this job, I don't know what's going to happen. I'll be honest with you. My dog has very serious illness. She has, or he, lymphoma. And it's going to cost me $13,000 to pay for this dog's treatment. And... I'm going to have to work during the day, whether I get this job or this other job that I've been offered, which means I'm going to have to hire someone to come and sit with the dog. And all I'm thinking is, okay, please don't let him ask me to post this on my social media. Don't let him ask me to post this on my social media. And I said, I'm sorry to hear that, Butch. I'm a dog lover, too, as you know. Uh, I'll tell you what I'll do. Uh, I wish it could be more. I don't have a lot of money right now, but I'm going to make a contribution. Send me the link. I'll make a contribution to your go. He says I launched a GoFundMe. And um, I, I, I'm just saying, please don't ask me to post it. I said, Butch, I'll make a contribution. He said, no, here's what I'd rather you do. 
I'd rather you post it on social media and ask people to donate. And I said, oh, oh. I, oh, oh. Now, I hate doing this, not because I don't want this dog to get cancer treatment and not because I don't want to help my friend hire a dog sitter to stay with this dog, but I don't then want everybody that I know asking me to post their GoFundMes for their cause uh, or, you know, whatever their issue is, because everybody's got an issue, right? I mean, unfortunately, it comes with life. Everyone's got a certain amount of tragedy that they have to deal with. And a lot of times this tragedy is very expensive. So I, I don't want to be in the position where every single listener, every single person I know, everybody I've ever met reaches out and starts saying, hey, Frank, can you post this and can you promote that? Uh, that's going to be a disaster. But. I looked at the GoFundMe and I was about to make a contribution. And I got to tell you, this dog story so got to me. So I have, I I am the sucker that I am. I have posted it on my Facebook page. If you want to make a contribution, Butch is a nice guy. This dog seems like a nice dog. If you want to make a, and I know how expensive it is paying for two sick cats right now, at least in part. If you want to make a contribution to help Butch defray the cost of this dog's uh, medical bills, uh, do a good deed. It'll be a good deed for you and a good deed for me. Uh, just go to Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. That's Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O Fan. Uh, let me say hello to Frederick in Manhattan. Hello, Frederick. Oh, Frank, hello. How are you doing? I just wanted, I was just listening to your show. I just wanted to say, fantastic, that's great. Uh, wanted to commend you on, on what you said uh, regarding uh, Tulsi Gabbard and what she was saying uh, regarding the, the bio labs in Ukraine and elsewhere and uh, the, the um, you know, the crap that she's been receiving from the likes of, of Mitt Romney. And it's fantastic what you're saying. She's such a great, she's such a great person, such a great patriot. Uh, she loves America, obviously. She loves the people. And she's been a veteran. She's, you know, um, she knows a lot. And she's, she's obviously a person of great integrity. And I just wanted to say thank you so much. Well, that's awfully nice but, of you, Frederick. Thank you for listening. And thank you for uh, thanks for calling. OK, appreciate it. 800-848-9222. All right. Uh, a lot of people holding. I'm going to go to folks in the length of time with which they've been holding, irrespective of the topic that they want to call in. Usually I don't do that. Usually I go topical, then new callers first, and uh, whoever Molly thinks is the best caller. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go in order of how long people have been holding. Tyrone in the Boogie Down Bronx has been holding for 90 minutes. He's entitled to get his two cents heard. Hello, Tyrone. Tyrone going once. Tyrone going twice. Tyrone is gone. Mario is in Jersey City. Hello, Mario. Frank, you are the best. And a great interview with Paul Manafort. But one thing I did not agree with, and I would have voted for Donald Trump in 2020. This is the reason. I have a tenant that lives in my home. His name is Nelson for 35 years. He's from Venezuela. Now, if you remember, you can correct me. 2018, there was an election there, a Democratic election. And Manafort said how Trump likes to look and have a great relationship with these bad guys around the world, whether it's Xi, Putin, or the North Korea guy. But people forget 
that the Democrat, his name was Juan Guido. He won the election, if you remember, in May of 2018. And Trump said right away, I'm going to make a phone call, and Maduro has got to go because he's a puppet for Putin. Now, I would have voted for him, and Trump would have been the greatest ever president, in my view. Now, Maduro is still there, and I didn't know the reason why Maduro is there. Is Guido's wife, Juan Guido's wife, came to the White House and talked to Trump. She was crying. They had arrested her father. And a lot of people from Venezuela ran away to Colombia, and all these things were going on. And Trump said, don't worry, don't worry. Maduro is not going to stay there. I think Maduro was leaving to go to the airport to leave Venezuela, got a phone call for Putin, turn around, go back, don't leave. And the reason is because Putin, if you look it up, maybe you can correct me, Venezuela, number one in oil in the world. Well, no, it's not number one in oil. Um, uh, the- well, they say Saudi Arabia is number two, and Putin is getting the oil or Maduro in Venezuela. It's right here in our continent. Oh, well, a couple Trump of things. Says, I'm, couple of I'm going to make one place in South America. All right, a couple of things but, uh, based on what you said, okay. Mario. First of all, that there was an election in Venezuela in 2018. It wasn't a yeah. proper democratic election, and it yeah. was wrought with fraud. Uh, Juan Guaido did not run in that election. Uh, Maduro ran against Henri Falcon and Javier Bertucci, and uh, Maduro won this crooked election with 67% of the vote. What then happened in 2019 was there was a coup attempt uh, where the uh, the people opposed to Guaido, uh, excuse me, people opposed to Maduro appointed Guaido as the president. Um, and now I won't dispute your characterization of Putin's role in uh, American recognition of Guaido, but just on the oil front, the United States, prior to this this uh, ban on Russian oil, the United States imports about 700,000 barrels of Russian oil a year. That's about 7% of its total. Now, the total output for what Venezuela produces in oil is 700,000 barrels a year. So the amount, the total amount of oil that Venezuela exports each year, that's only equal to the entire amount that uh, Russia sent to the United States. So I don't think there is – they are a big oil producer, biggest in South America, that's for sure, but they're not nearly as big as uh, Saudi Arabia, Russia, or the United States for that matter. Great points, though, on the Putin front. Thank you. Uh, let's see. Who's been holding – oh, Louise in South Amboy. Hello, Louise. Hi, Frank. Thanks for a great show again. Sure. Listen. Thank you. I was interested in the fellow talking about the Lindbergh case, and this is way out. From this city of South Amboy, a little town, New Jersey, about 50 miles out of New York, the governor at the time of the Lindbergh trial for killing the baby was a guy named Harold G. Hoffman. He's from this town. He, he served as uh, the governor during the trial, and then he was, I think, a House of Representatives or something guy. And he lived around the corner from my father, okay? And one night when I was down in Texas at my cousin, my cousin had passed away. And another guy comes on the radio four o'clock in the morning like you guys and said, I'm Charles Lindbergh Jr. I was kidnapped by the mafia and I was sent to a farm in Oklahoma 
and then sent to Los Angeles with a family because my father didn't want me because I had a leg. Now, the baby was little, so I don't know if he could walk then or not that was deformed or something. And Charles Lindbergh allegedly was a Hitler devotee and had other children, a whole family. They showed it one time on History Channel years ago mm-hmm. over Germany, okay? So, and this fellow Hoffman, the governor, I mean, they named the school after him and everything for years, but before he died, he wrote a confession that he embezzled like $300,000 from the local bank. So they From the state? He embezzled it from the state? He embezzled it from, I know it was the state. Yeah, it was the, the state. It was the state. Okay. But no, did, any, did you ever hear anybody else say, the baby lives. Yes. And and in fact, um, in fact, you know, we're going to do a series of segments on the Lindbergh baby, and that's one of the main theories. It's not one that I subscribe to, honestly. But yes, I have heard that a number, a number of times. And and thanks for the call, Louise, and the stroll down memory lane. And I was sorry that, uh, and I enjoyed talking with Michael Chaplin, but. Um, you know, he was not up on a lot of the conspiracy theories because he doesn't subscribe to them, which I get. But um, one of the authors that I've been in touch with, and he was not available uh, this week, but hopefully next week. One of the authors that I've been in touch with, he believes that Charles Lindbergh himself was actually responsible for his baby's kidnapping. I don't think there's much evidence to support the fact that the baby lived. I don't. I don't. I can buy, and there was a good mini-series about this about maybe 20 years ago on TNT called Trial of the Century. I think there is a real possibility that the person that was executed for this kidnapping didn't do it. I really do believe that. But I don't think the baby lived. I'd love to think that because it's, it's, it's cool. It's kind of like a Sharp James-style comeback story. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Ron is in Michigan. Hello, Ron. Good morning, Frank. Frank, I didn't hear the segment about uh, Lindbergh, but... Well, then by all means, comment on it. Well, Schwarzkopf's father, wasn't he the police chief in New Jersey uh, to investigate the the Lindbergh kidnapping? Yes, that's right. Okay, so... I'm sorry I uh, interrupted with that. But uh, getting back to Tulsi Gabbard and uh, Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney, from what I understand, was uh, partying in France, Paris, France, going to bars and stuff like that, uh, celebrating his uh, his uh, deferments from the Vietnam War while he was proselytizing his faith. Uh, and also getting related to that, when he avoided Vietnam, he avoided the uh, chemical agent, Agent Orange, that uh, we never were prosecuted for uh, dumping that uh, poison on the Vietnamese people who are still suffering and Vietnam veterans who are suffering, which I'm one of, is still not being compensated for our Agent Orange, our chemical uh, uh, poison that we dumped on the Viet- Indochina, not just Vietnam. And... Uh, <laughs> It, it, all these, many of these people who are, especially on the left, I want, I want to say, who are, you know, pro this war, uh, open up the airwaves and uh, ex-CIA agents who, uh, who, who go on their airwaves and and, and uh, they they brag about their uh, exploits in Libya and this and that, but they don't like to mention Vietnam. 
you know, and we still have a war criminal, uh, Kissinger, who's alive. We prosecute, or they prosecute, 99-year-old uh, concentration camp guards from the Nazi era. Why can't we put on trial? Of course, we're not going to put on Kissinger for his war crimes in Vietnam. You know, they are glaring, and he he still can't uh, travel out of this country because of his uh, his war crimes. All right, well, putting so, aside uh, the Kissinger stuff for, uh, for the moment, uh, I definitely... Uh, recognize the seriousness of Agent Orange and its use in uh, Vietnam. I had a very close friend, Mike Kokoza, who was a Vietnam veteran, decorated, and um, he was exposed to Agent Orange in Vietnam and experienced health problems literally until the day he died. And he died about 19 years ago. And uh, he and I, he was probably my closest friend. And he was somebody that uh, his life was cut short significantly by Agent Orange. And uh, using biological, you know, having deadly pathogens, whether it's anthrax, Agent Orange, or anything like that, it's, it's serious stuff. And I really think that Tulsi Gabbard's warning and her admonition and her faulting of both the American government and the Ukrainian government on this front are right on the money. And I don't think the solution to that is to label her a traitor. But it all goes to what we've been talking about, which is that there's a media narrative. And I got into this with Ralph Nader a little bit yesterday. I got into this with Aaron Mate. I've gotten into this with Michael Tracy. There's a media narrative that is appropriate, and then there's a media narrative that you're considered just, you know, fringe. Now, now I'm going to retweet this thing here. If you can find it on my Twitter, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. This is from a Twitter user. Uh, Spirit of Lenin is the is the Twitter account. But he has a screenshot of a CNN politics article from April of 2016. Pentagon, U.S. bombing of Afghanistan hospital, not a war crime. That was the headline. Then right above it, and you could see it, I just tweeted it, at Frank Moreno, uh, from just a week or two ago, you, same publication, CNN Politics, Ukrainian hospital bombing increases heat on U.S. and allies to do more to stop Russia. It's just a very different standard of covering things when Russia does them as opposed to when another country does them. 800-848-WABC. Carol is in New Jersey. Hey, Carol, where have you been? Some callers have actually been calling and asking for you. Oh, actually, I was in the hospital. Oh, no. What happened? Yeah, I fell. I hit my head. Um, I had some kind of a seizure. They kept me there for two weeks. Well, first of all, I'm sorry to hear that. Are you feeling better now? Yes, of course I am. I'm absolutely fine. I still don't know to this day what happened. All I know is that they they said I went unconscious, and then I woke up the next day, and I was fine. Did they let you take your radio into the hospital with you? Oh, I watch television. Well, that was not at all my question, Carol. <laughs> no, I I didn't bring my radio with me, unfortunately. And they don't have um, uh, they don't have phones in hospitals. You couldn't call us from the hospital. 
Oh, they took my purse away. I see. All right. All right. Listen, Frank, I'm sorry I haven't spoken to you. It's okay. It's okay. Now that you've uh, suffered from a head injury, you probably will find yourself agreeing much more with Curtis than you do with me. Oh, no. (laughs) Um, But I wanted to mention something about your friend. He, I don't know if he's under any kind of psychological uh, assistance or therapy or whatever. But there's something not right going on there because every time he speaks to you, he's got some kind of a new problem. And I mean, I've had problems in my life too, legal, financial, but I take care of my problems. I do whatever I can to resolve the problem. I think he said his name is Butch. Yeah, so you're not calling me to ask me to post a GoFundMe for you to pay for your medical bills or anything. No, of course not. No, I'm fine. I have insurance. Everything is taken care of. I paid my phone bill. I paid my, I I took care of everything on my own. Because that's the kind of person I am. That's great. Um, Well, it's great to hear from you again, Carol. Oh, you too. Your your friend definitely needs some kind of extra help, I think. Yeah, I think he does. He, he, and he also needs $13,000 worth of dog bills paid. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Tyrone in the Boogie Down Bronx is back. Tyrone, I went to you before. Where were you? I'm sorry, Frank. I didn't realize I was holding so long and that charge ran out. Ah, uh, okay. all right. Go ahead. Well, what do you want to say? I want to thank you for the interview. It was very, very good. I have one. I have just one suggestion, and that is that on those type people with so heavy uh, uh, inflammation, we need more than one hour with them. You know, that's a fair criticism. The second part of that is uh, give the uh, listeners the couple of chance. A lot of people know the other side of the story, and they can ask him questions directly. That was the only two points, but a great interview. Thank you. Thank you, Tyrone. That's nice of you to say. You know, that's fair. I, I mean, look, it was, you know, Paul Manafort, 72 years old. I don't think he wanted to spend two hours and stay up until uh, three o'clock in the morning. But we'll, maybe we'll do that in the future if he's willing, uh, because I, I used to really enjoy that about the Larry King show is he used to do that is he'd have a guest in studio for an hour and then let them and then take calls with the guest for another hour. I, I really like that. And if you have somebody that's as interesting as Paul Manafort, you could certainly do that with them. So uh, maybe we'll do that in the future. I don't think he was up for it uh, today, personally. All right, we'll continue with your calls in just a moment. 800-848-9222. If you'd want to give to Butch's Dogs GoFundMe, go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. It's facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O-Fan. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. Talk Radio 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 77 WABC. We've been waiting for a long time. Yes, we've been waiting for a long, long time. We've been waiting for a long time. But we ain't gonna wait no more. We're getting ready to rock and roll. We're going to one, two, three, four, one, two, three. Well, there's a reason everybody should be shaking in the house tonight. And you should grab your favorite lady and promise her you'll do me right. Turn back, Jack, to jump back and give you a shot of so 
The boys are back in town. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. <laughs> so my wife and I got a piece of mail uh, the, the other day, which on the one hand made us both a little angry, and uh, on the other hand, it, um, it it made us both laugh a little bit. We got a... A bill. Um, well, it was. It's not technically a bill, but it's a notice that a bill is coming, and the bill was sent, or the notice that the bill will be sent, was sent not to my wife or to me, but is was sent to my son, Carmine. That's right, this guy. I feel like his cry has gotten a little deeper. I'll get you some um, some. Updated crying audio uh, soon, Matt. Just remind me after the show if you would. And so we got this um, bill or pseudo bill that says the amount that he he owes or the amount that he may owe is $587. There's uh, the amount due to the provider, which is the hospital, is $2,936.59. The percent, the percentage, the portion paid for by our insurance company is two thousand three hundred and forty nine dollars twenty eight seven cents. So the total that again, this is addressed to my son Carmine, not to me or my wife. The total that my son owes the hospital is five hundred and eighty seven dollars. So what are they billing Carmine for? So let's look at the amount. Build by provider. Hospital miscellaneous. It's $128. That's what they're charging us for miscellaneous. And our plan covers all that. So we don't have to pay any portion of the miscellaneous, thank goodness. The hospital lab bill, that's $80. Our plan covers $80. Carmine doesn't have to come up with $80 out of his... uh, Bank account, including not from the $50 that John Scandalios sent him. Hospital lab, $185. Our plan covers the whole thing. We don't know anything there. And, and then comes room and board. The amount billed by our provider is... The amount due to the provider is $2,936.59, almost $3,000. The plan paid for 80% of it, so the plan paid for $2,349.27. So they're claiming that he owes $587.32 in room and board. Now... He stayed in the same room that my wife and I stayed in. We already paid her bill for room and board. The kid didn't eat anything except breast milk. They didn't provide him with any board. They didn't provide him with any room. The room that he stayed in was our room, which we have already paid for through our insurance company. And I'm sure we paid the balance. So they're sending this poor four-month-old a bill for $587 
for room and board, which we already paid for. Where do these people get off charging a four-month-old for room and board that was already paid for? What, what board is there? He drank breast milk. He didn't eat anything. He wasn't ordering hospital food. Wasn't making any long-distance phone calls. Imagine my son's shock for him to open the mail, and this is one of the first pieces of mail addressed to him, is a bill from the hospital asking him to pay for room and board that was the same as his parents, which they already paid for. How stupid is that? Crazy. Crazy. Um, I want to follow up on one story that we have been covering as well. Uh, I told you the story how when I was at Judge Lantry's induction, Assembly member Michael Tenusis, Republican, one of only, I think, two or three, two, I think, only two Republicans from New York City in the State Assembly, bumped my elbow as I was holding a glass of wine and it spilled all over my, this red wine, all over my sports jacket. And this is a sports jacket that I wear a lot. If you look online and you see pictures of me in a sports jacket, it's usually this one. Well, my wife took it to the dry cleaner, and unfortunately, it could not be saved. And it is stained permanently. So, Assemblyman Tenusis is lucky I don't live in his district anymore because it would be tough for me to vote for somebody that stained my sports jacket. So, we may do a funeral for that uh, sports jacket. But you know what? My wife was reprimanding me when she came back from the dry cleaner today. She said, oh, you know, remember you wouldn't let me clean it? Because I was embarrassed. You know, I'm covered in red wine through no fault of my own because this klutz assembly member is hitting my elbow. And my wife's trying to clean me like I'm a like I'm a dog getting this red wine off my jacket. I said, let's just go home. Let's just go. And that's what we did. And now I have a stained jacket. Thank you, Assemblyman Tenusis. And by thank you, I mean no thank you. All right. um, Next hour, do you have too much stuff? I do. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Tomorrow is uh, St. Patrick's Day. We're going to have all sorts of St. Patrick's Day programming. I think Congressman Peter King is going to be here um, one of the as one of the co-hosts of the morning show. Uh, we'll have some Irish guests on, on this show as well, I'm sure. And uh, my wife is Irish. Her maiden name is O'Brien, and that makes my son half Irish. And, you know, he's very fair-complected, at least as of now. He's got red hair, so he's very Irish-looking. And uh, my three half-siblings are half-Irish, so uh, I have a lot of love for the Irish, absolutely. Now, 
I I subscribe to this Axios newsletter. Axios is a is a news source, and they publish this daily newsletter, a whole bunch of different versions of it, and I subscribe to several of them. And there was one that really caught my eye. Here's the headline. One big thing. Simplify your life. This is from the Axios Finish Line newsletter. And this is something that I've thought about from time to time, but never really studied too closely until this. This is what it says. We're filling our lives with so much junk. Clothes we'll never wear. Spare furniture. Stuff we might use. That the U.S. now has more self-storage facilities than, are you ready for this? McDonald's, Wendy's, Burger King, Starbucks, and Walmarts combined. Understand, there are around 50,000 storage complexes in this country. That's more than the number of McDonald's stores, Wendy's restaurants, Burger King restaurants, Starbucks, and Walmarts combined. So Axios characterizes this as being overstuffed. We're overstuffed. And according to Axios, all that stuff often brings a lot more stress than joy. Never in history have so many things been affordable for so many people. Never in history has it been easier to swipe a card or click a button and wait for the Amazon truck to arrive. And never in history have Americans had bigger houses or storage sheds to keep it all. So what does it mean? Anthony Grace is an anthropologist at Connecticut College who studies why we have so much stuff, is what he said. Quote, I see the proliferation of self-storage in the United States as the materialization of excessive, unchecked, and unsustainable, unsustainable levels of consumption. He said it's also the difficulty we experience in easily severing relationships with many of our possessions. Time for spring cleaning, but don't just throw it all out. There are dozens of ways to sell or donate your stuff. And then they give a lot of suggestions. My wife gets rid of everything. And she donates stuff to Goodwill all the time. I am more like my mom. My mom is a clutterer. Uh, She holds on to stuff. Marie Kondo, the Japanese organizing consultant and author who popularized her minimalist method of tidying up on Netflix, puts it like this. It's a very strange phenomenon. But when we reduce what we own and essentially detox our bodies, it has a detox effect on our bodies as well. Now, I am a collector. I love collecting things. Now, my the, the, the objects that I have that are taking up the most space are books. I have books upon books upon books. I I own more books than I will, unless I get sent to prison like Paul Manafort and put in solitary confinement, I have more books than I will ever be able to read in a lifetime. And I just keep getting more. And uh, there are books upon books everywhere. I also um, have all sorts of papers, all sorts of uh, stacks and stacks of letters that I've received, uh, cards, old birthday cards. I have... uh, 
all sorts of uh, memos that I've written to people over the years. I have all sorts of obsolete pieces of technology. I have not one but two typewriters, one manual, one electric. I have old video cameras that are obsolete at this point. I have radios, 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 and more radios. I have so much stuff. It's It's gotten to the point where when my wife and I have a Saturday where we have nothing planned, I have one secret agenda the whole day. That agenda is to distract my wife before she says these words, let's organize your office today. I want to distract her before she insists upon that. Because the whole week, she said, hey, th- th- she says the same thing every week. This weekend, I really want to organize your office. And all I hear... All I feel when she says that is fear, is fear. And now it's at the point where whenever she steps into my office, I now try to distract her and get her out of there. Not because I have any sort of contraband in there, but just because I know she's going to get upset about all the clutter that's in there. And in this respect, I'm very much like Joe Franklin. And Joe's office, I mean, you can just Google images of Joe Franklin's office and uh, a whole world opens up. In fact, there's pictures. I think Ellen in the Facebook group posted a photo of, of Joe and me in his office. That doesn't even do it justice because his office was the stuff of legend. And Joe would say he knew where everything was. And I used to love uh, here. I'm going to I'm going to post a um an image. Um, he, he had a big office, but you really couldn't fit a lot of people in there because he had so much stuff and he loved it. And you know what? I loved uh, from the time I was 16 years old on, I love going to visit him there and ask him about all the stuff that's in there. I loved it. I love clutter. And again, is it frustrating at times when maybe you can't find everything? Yes, it certainly is. I wouldn't change it for anything. So my question for you is, when it comes to being overstuffed, do you think we are overstuffed? That's question one. Question two is, uh, do you think that this is emblematic of some of the same things that These folks seem to think that it's emblematic of. 800-848-9222, 800-848-WABC. Would you have any tips? You know, it's funny. About two years ago, it was during the summer, um, I went to visit uh, my mom's house. And, you know, I lived there until I I was older. And I still have crates and crates of clothes. And we went through, my wife and my sister-in-law were were with me. And we went through all these clothes in crates and crates. And I did allow my wife to uh, get rid of some stuff. But I, I did allow my mom, rather, to get rid of some stuff. Almost all the clothes, at least the ones that I still found fashionable and the clothes that I that still fit me, I wouldn't let her throw away. Now, I have not worn any of those clothes in the last two years. But I still can't bear to think that she might throw them away. I have hundreds of VHS tapes 
in her basement. I have um, all sorts of, uh, probably thousands of baseball cards in her basement. I would rather cut off one of my fingers than part with it. Now, I'm not sure what that says about me, that I have such a difficult time parting with things, but apparently I'm not the only one. What do you think it stands about? It uh, says about American society. Maybe I need to get one of these storage facilities. I remember Curtis had one, and you know what? He had me drop off or pick up something from one of these storage facilities one time, and it was it was an adventure. He had all sorts of cool stuff in there. It was like visiting Joe Franklin's office again. So, with so much dr- junk filling our lives, clothes we'll never use, spare furniture, stuff we might use. What do, you, what do you think this says about us? Why does America have so much stuff? Never before in American history has this ever been the case. Why now? And what do you think it says about us? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222-1234. open lines. If you want to comment on anything we're discussing, including this, let me begin with Roger in Massachusetts. Hello, Roger. All right. Thanks for taking my call. Um, first of all, congratulations on your uh, interview there with Paul Manafort. Um, Thank was, you. Hopefully it'll, uh, hopefully it'll make some news. Yes, sir. Um, yeah, I, mean, I agree with the other, what everyone else who says that you're a good interviewer. I might have sent you an email about that because it's, your interviews are very professional. But regarding the subject we're talking about right now, um, my point about stuff is that every article, no, most articles of stuff have a story to go with them. And, um, it's a shame for some stuff to just go by the wayside and, uh, and never, you know, and just, I mentioned when I called yesterday about photographs and things that, um, uh, I don't like seeing them in antique shops because it's, you know, they're the photographs of people, we went through this. But I had also told you that I had found a pair of braids that were my wife's back at, when she was nine years old. And, and then later I found a photograph that showed those braids um, a few uh, weeks before they were cut off. And so that stuff went together. I put it in a jewelry box and shipped it to my stepdaughter. Now, as far as things that, you know, I sometimes when I go to yard sales, I pick up things, if I, if I like it, and it was made by hand by somebody, I grab it. And because, you know, someone made that, and I can know, cite you three instances right now of things that either I, my wife, or my mother's cousin made that were almost discarded. I found something I had made, uh, ceramic, broken in half in the flower garden, and which I promptly took it and put it back together, et cetera. Same thing with my wife, same thing behind a garage, something she made out of ceramic. And then a wooden, a, a wooden pig that my mother's cousin carved in the 1940s that I found in the wood pile next to the fireplace, which I also grabbed. And now it's on a nice shelf in my sister's uh, farmhouse in Connecticut. But um, one other thing you might be interested in, though, in a pile of papers in my in-law's house, I saw, oh, a nice old typewritten um, receipt. I thought that must be old blue typer. And come to find out this receipt was a discharge receipt from my mother-in-law after having my wife in 1955 from the hospital with the, with the room and board with the prices of everything. And just sitting amongst a bunch of it, it would have gotten thrown out. 
That's I, that's cool. That's cool. I like yeah. that a lot. You know, it's funny, um, and that's the thing. I've tried to now make the transition towards scrapbooking so that all my yeah. uh, ticket stubs and my letters and my photos aren't just lying around my office, that I can get them in a little more centralized location. And it's going well, yeah. but it's it's slow. It's slow moving. It takes a while to go through all that stuff, and that's the problem is finding the time for all this stuff. Yeah, well, that, that's what I do, too. You know, the thing is just to label. So I, I'm, I'm trying to – I got little boxes. I'm putting stuff in boxes, and I'm labeling. This is what it is. This is what it is. This is what it is. And then, and then you know, people who come after me then at least know what it is and, 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 who's, and what the story is with it. And I could go on and on about this stuff. Yeah, well, that's cool, but Roger. Thank you. I think Thank we're you. kindred spirits. Appreciate it. 800 I'm curious if you're out there – especially the women listening, if you're more like me and and my mom, who's like this way, and Joe Franklin, or you're more like my wife, that uh, she will throw it out. She'll toss it or she'll donate it. She She's not one for saving all this stuff. She does she's not about it. Not about it. And uh, it's it's. I'll be interested to see how my son fares on this one. Deanna is in Yonkers. Hello, Deanna. Yes. What's on your mind, Deanna? Uh, uh, having all this stuff, it really tells me I'm like you. I collect everything, all the junk. I have papers, books, a lot of books, magazines. So it tells me who I am and where I come from. Every piece of the garbage that I have, it's, uh, it's uh, part of my life, you know. So nothing wrong with you. You're very normal. <laughs> well, see, thank you. Uh, that is the way. You're very welcome. That's the way I feel. Uh, I think it's, um, you know, it's all part of, uh, I don't know, it's almost like. Um, part of it's, you. Yeah, exactly. If you get rid of it, it's like you're losing something uh, of your life. People that they don't collect, they don't even know. They don't remember where they come from, who they are. You know, it's like uh, to me that's very cold. I mean, uh, I I like to know who I am. So now, are you more like uh, Joe Franklin, who claimed that he knew the order of his disorder, or are you more like me, no. where sometimes you have a difficult time finding things? No, I know where everything is. You do? Okay. See, <laughs> I, I don't do know where everything is. I, 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 I act like I Every do, Every once I in a while, I go through the envelopes and think I get rid of the ones that, uh, like, I used to keep all my calendars. <laughs> so eventually I got rid of them because I thought it's very silly and they were taking a lot of room. So... What I don't have from my, I have things from my childhood when I was uh, like maybe seven, eight years old, and I kept them. <laughs> like they think I'm crazy. No, I, I don't think you're crazy. I think that's wonderful. I think that's great. No, my sister, she's losing her memory. She thinks she's losing her memory, but she sold her house. She threw everything away. Everything, I mean. She wanted everything new. She's so unhappy and she's losing her memory because I don't think I think she lost herself, you know, by getting rid of her. Mm. Mm. Well, that so. is sad. I'm wishing her the best as uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, thank you. But you are very normal. <laughs> and you are. I bet you know exactly where you come from. Thank you very much. I'd certainly like to uh, like to think so. Appreciate it. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Tom's in Brooklyn. Hello, Tom. Hey, Frank, uh, just thinking my grandmother grew up in the Depression and when things were scarce, you know, 
anything that was broken or whatever, they'd shave everything. And I remember her telling me that. And she said she's going to fix everything. You know, my father also had this bug, anything and everything. I unfortunately also have this bug. And I dumpster dive, I'm going to garbage picking, I go to flea markets, garage sales. And I saved so much stuff and realized it was worth something. Then Superstorm Sandy hit and I lost most of it. Oh, boy. And, I am, and I'm no longer really interested in my eight-track tapes, my albums, they were all ruined. I, you know what? I don't collect nothing anymore. I'm done. What is it because it was so emotionally taxing seeing all that stuff destro- destroyed in the hurricane? Or do you just uh, have different priorities in your life at this point? Both. Uh, well, I, I'll be honest with you. There was the stuff that was my family stuff was really more important. I felt really bad about that. Sure. All the other junk that I've collected over the years, I didn't care. I was throwing everything out. I didn't care. I was done. You know. Now I'm starting to get back into it a little bit, but not as much. And I, I still have a few collectibles and stuff, but I'm not going to do it anymore. Not like I did the last time. I uh. just, I guess, the clean out part is. It's like cleaning the soul. Yeah. Well, that's, I guess, what Marie Kondo and others are saying here, that it's a way of detoxifying your life as well. Thank you, Tom, for sharing that. Sorry you had such a tough time in the hurricane. Xavier is in New Jersey. Hello, Xavier. Good morning, Frank. Good show, as usual. I agree with you 100%. You must keep all the items, especially those baseball cards. These are items that, what we say, dreams are made of, Frank. And to get back to Bob, well, let me let um, me ask you though, uh, Xavier, yes. just to play devil's advocate. Now, I'm not doing anything with those baseball cards. I'm not looking at them. I'm not trading them. Why shouldn't I get rid of them and say sell them to a collector or be, just give them away? Because Frank, the thought alone of you having them—that's what gives you satisfaction it does. and you feel good. Why is that? Just to know you, that's. Human nature. Some people couldn't care if there was mantle, errands, everything in those packs. They couldn't care. They tossed them. It's like you see in life. Sometimes you'll know neighbors pass away, and you'll look on the side. The black bags of garbage will mm. be put out with all their stuff that meant so much to them in life. Then other people will cherish the littlest thing. So I agree with you 100%. And go over to to Bob, uh, uh, not Bob Grant. Um, he had a gentleman who used to be uh, on the radio. Right, Joe Franklin. Joe Franklin. Not only did he have the clutter in his office, Frank, but he had many warehouses around the city that he used to oh, run I know. between. I know. He had all his sheet music. He had everything. It's it's that thought to know you have it, Frank. Now you also have. The old time people who came out of the depression, Frank, who didn't have anything. And then when they were able to afford things, that's when that started happening. They were collecting things they wanted. They didn't have this. They, you, you know the old story. How many old timers had 10 sets of dishes? You didn't need 10 sets. Of, it sure. was just a thing. They always worried about not having it again. Yeah, it's so true. It's true. Hundred percent. Thank you, Xavier. Yeah, I still have a massive collection of old wrestling magazines, a big collection of old comic books. If my mother were to decide I'm selling my house, her, meaning she would sell her house and move to a two bedroom condo, come get rid of all your stuff. 
I would have no idea what to do. I would have to rent one of these storage facilities, and it would take me weeks to move all the stuff that I have in her house to a storage facility. I hope that doesn't happen. I'm hoping she stays there forever just so I can keep my stuff there. Valentino is in South Jersey. Where in South Jersey are you, Valentino? I am I am way down here on the Delaware Bay. I literally can see Delaware. So what what, what county are you in? Cumberland County. Cumberland County. Okay. Well, my Cum- wife and I go to Cape May every year. We really like it down there. I can see the lights of Cape May. Very out the nice. Back window across the back. Way nice. Um, with regards to collection and goods, I don't know. We're possessive people. My father used to say, he would tell me, he said, Dave, he said, we own so much stuff after a while, it owns us, which is very true. Um, I will tell you, though, something. When you're talking about mini storage and, and people in clothing, what I found out, and this is very interesting. These donation bins where people donate clothes all over the place, you see these things at shopping centers, people dump their clothes off at those donation bins, the Goodwill. But tell you what they do with those clothing. They take that clothing and they send it over to India. They pull all the copper buttons off. They pull all the zippers off. They reclaim that. And then that pair of jeans that, let's say, I don't know, some homeless person discarded in the woods that ended up in a bin ends up re-shredded. Sent back, and about two years later, you're paying $90 for a pair of jeans. It's big money. Uh, also, there's these book uh, donation bins. Have you seen them yet or not? The book donation bins? Yeah, where you yes. donate books. They're yes, green boxes. absolutely. With, they take those books all over the country. They go to Baltimore, Maryland. They go on a conveyor belt. They're scanned. If it's a book of any value, it goes to the left. Every book gets blown open. Any money in there, any documents or bonds, then it goes to Evansville, Indiana. They take them back up there, and they discard the books of anything that's not any value. They're big money makers. People think they're donation bins, but they're big money makers. The big problem what's happening in New Jersey right now, and they're starting to enact laws now, there's so much stuff that's left outside these bins. People are looting that, and they're starting to hold yard sales, and it's a constant yard sale. It, it goes every day all through the summertime. And the states are really starting to clamp down on it because it. Oh no, I, I see that. That's a big, uh, big, uh, big issue in the borough in which I live, uh, where I, I talked about that before. There's a perpetual yard sale at one property, and a lot of the neighbors don't like it. Thank you, Valentino. Let me try and get a couple of other people in here before we get to the thousand dollar minute. Steve is in New Jersey. Hello, Steve. Hey, good morning, Frank. Um, I'm actually also a collector of old sport magazines comic books, weightlifting. But one of my favorite parts about the old magazines is the ads in the back. Like the old Charles Atlas ad or like Become a Locksmith. And sometimes when you look at the old ads and you see what they're selling or like, like Copper Tone Suntan Lotion, yeah. it's almost like stepping into a time machine. It is. And then finally, as far as the clothes, if you don't wear it for two years, you got to get rid of it. Unless it's a pair of Z Cabarici pants. Because they're going to come back. <laughs> Duly noted. Thank you, Steve. 800-848-WABC. Mike is on Staten Island. Hello, Mike. Hey, so for years and years and years, I saved magazines. And finally, one day, I got rid of, or tried to get rid of everything. And a friend of mine said, oh, those are worth a fortune. So I brought everything back home. And I started advertising everywhere. And out of all of those magazines, I got offered $1 for one edition. So I loaded my truck up, and I took it to the paper recycling plant in Staten Island by Victory Boulevard, and it was worth it to see how the operation works, and I got rid of all that stuff. Really? Barely a dent in what else I have. And one day, I hope to God I could get enough nerve up to get a dumpster and get rid of everything. 
Well, best of luck to you, Mike. You're a better man than I. I don't know that I could do it. 800-848-9222. Mike's in Pennsylvania. Hello, Mike. Morning, Frank. Uh, what, I, what I like to collect is the favorites from weddings. And I, I collect them. And for 25 years was up, like, my best friend, they gave a bottle of, like, a little bottle of champagne. Well, his daughter was getting married. And I bought her the champagne. Another cousin of mine had, uh, she got married around Christmas time. And she had, you know, she gave Christmas balls for the tree. Well, 25 years later, I went to her daughter and I gave them, you know, I, I passed it on. I passed them on to the kids later on in life. So if you see them wedding favors, you know, I don't think I'll be passing on any more 25 year, year ones. But I still collect them. I tell my grandkids or whatever what they are and, you know, what to do with them. Mike, let me ask you this. Uh, Aside from that bottle of champagne, which is really neat, I like what you did with it, what is the best wedding favor you've ever gotten? I, I think the, I think the, what you, I think the, the champagne and the, and the, and the, uh, and the Christmas ball was yeah. so very okay. nice. That's good. It was nice. I got my grandfather's uh, high school diploma that was sitting in my sister's closet I got that hanging up on my office wall. You know what I mean? In my house. All things that my, my grandkids can look at. They, they watch me one day. I go to a comic book store with them. And I put them through. I don't even know who to carry or whatever. The guy told me, this is going to be worth money. So I laid out like 20 bucks for a dollar comic book. And the kids are like, Grandpa, what are you doing? That's very funny, so Mike. That's pretty cool. Mike, thank you. You know, it's funny. My Uncle Carmine was like that, but he was very organized with it. He was a collector, but he was organized. He knew where everything was. He had it on index cards, all these tapes and tapes tapes that he had alphabetized and on index cards. And uh, I have a friend, Joel, who you visit his house. It's like a museum. There's stuff all over the walls. There's stuff all over the ceilings. He's got stuff upon stuff and stuff. It's a lot of novelty stuff, a lot of old political memorabilia. It really is like visiting a museum when you walk around his house. But there's an organization to it. In my case, there's not much of an organization. It's just sort of there, wherever I could find a spot for it. 800-848-92222. Mark is in New Haven. Hello, Mark. Good morning, Frank. How Russell and the baby? Everybody good? Uh, Everybody is great. Thank you. Terrific. So I have a couple of thoughts. One is the um, holding on to physical stuff has the ability in me to trigger the memories that I have in my brain, but wouldn't come back up without the physical representation. But it also brings to mind something Andy Rooney said on 60 Minutes. He said there are two kinds of savers. There's one kind of saver that says, I can't get rid of this because I might need it in the future. It would be silly to have to buy it again since I already own it. Then there's another type of saver that says, no, this has much too much sentimental value to me. I couldn't part with this. Unfortunately, I'm both. But so am I. As you were saying that, I'd never heard that Andy Rooney commentary, even though I was a big fan of Andy Rooney. I never heard him say that. As you were saying that, I, I was thinking I fit into both categories. 800-848-WABC. Joe on the New Jersey Turnpike. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Um, I, I just wanted to go into... You know, we all come to that point of life when uh, our parents pass away. We got to go through people's personal possessions, you know. And I, my mom passed, and we go through, and it's all little things when we were kids and all that. But my old man lived by himself, and he really didn't have that much money. We were going through things. I found 
his Eagle Globe and Anchor, was the Marine Corps emblem that he got when he went through Paris Island. And wow. he had his K-Bar, the Marine Corps knife that he got. And that one went through Iwo Jima and Korea. No one ever saw this stuff, ever. He never, never brought it out. It was nothing. But I saw that. Whatever reason that kept in his drawer, wrapped up in some piece of clothing, whatever that brought him, you know, I, I kept it. And I just said, you know, whatever this the old man had, this, this kept him safe or kept his mind or whatever. So I had that. No one else wanted it, but for whatever reason, I said, geez, he, he kept this 80-something years. It got him through World War II and landings and all kinds of crap. And that K-Bar, and every time I look at that K-Bar, I hold it. I said, my old man was 17 years old when he landed at Iwo Jima, and he had this knife on his side. So for whatever reason, I, you know, he kept safe with it. I keep it, and I, I'm going to hopefully, my, I have girls. I don't know if they're ever going to want it, but I keep it. It's a piece of history. It's a piece. To that person, I keep it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and thank you, Joe. That is nice. Very, very touching. It reminds me of that scene in Pulp Fiction. Um, and if you haven't seen Pulp Fiction, I recommend it. I really like it. But Bruce Willis's character, the sentimental attachment that he has to his father's watch that Christopher Walken gave him and everything that he went through to pass that watch, which had been in his family for many generations, on to his son. I mean, Bruce Willis didn't care about any of that other stuff except for that uh, that watch. 800-848-9222. David is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello. Yes, uh, good morning. I, I want to take issue with something that you said about the press coverage of Russia uh, regarding um, human rights abuses, bombing hospitals. All right. And the United States bombing a hospital, it being covered differently. The United States has never in, in my recollection, targeted hospitals intentionally. The Russians targeted hospitals in Chechnya. They targeted hospitals in Syria. And basically, Syria is the proven ground for what they're doing in Ukraine. Just like the Germans and the Italians tried out their tactics in the Spanish Civil War, Putin did the same exact thing in Syria. So let's not pretend that there's a double standard when we criticize Russia, because Russia is not the same as the United States. I know people like Donald Trump and your old friend, Stephen, the late Stephen Cohen, might say that, but it's not true, Frank. Thank you, David. 800-848-9222. Al is in Tenafly, New Jersey. Hello, Al. Hey, Frank. Yeah, first, regarding the very sad and tragic kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby, about 55 years ago when I was a journalist, I met Ann Morrow Lindbergh, and she did not believe that Bruno Hauptman was guilty of killing the baby. Mm. And you're right, the baby did not survive. Uh, also, on another point, I knew Joe Franklin very well, and I gave him the original screen tests of Marilyn Monroe and Robert Mitchum. And Joe looked at the cases. He thanked me very profusely. And then he took them and tossed them to his pal, Richie Ornstein, who put them on a shelf in that cavernous office on 42nd Street that Joe had. And Joe was the legendary collector. And thanks for reminding me of a great guy, Joe Franklin. Thank you, Al. Uh, the office was actually on 43rd Street. 43rd Street between uh, 8th and 9th, if memory serves. Evelyn is in Bayonne. Hello, Evelyn. Can I, Frank, I've been waiting for this all night. 
we're kindred spirits, and I love the stories that the people are telling that are calling in. Um, remember that Seinfeld episode about throwing the books out once you read them? He was yelling right, at George. Right, right, right. How do I throw out an autographed copy of Rudy Giuliani's book, Leadership? I could never. I read it. How can I throw that out? I remember the day that I waited online at the bookshop for him. I cried when I got up to him. And this is how I know he was he's a, a, a dear soul. We weren't allowed to speak to him at all. And he saw the tears coming down my face and he said to me, what is your name? And then he put to Evelyn, read Rudy Giuliani. Frank, all these things are they're part of my life. It's just part of my life. And my books and my treasures and all these other things, I look at them. My girlfriend in the 70s, I gave her a kitchen witch to hang up. It's supposed to keep evil spirits away from your cooking. After all these years, she still has it. And it's just acceptance is the answer to all my problems. I've accepted that. I like to keep my stuff and that's it. Well, As opposed to the man downstairs from me that I cat sit. He moved to Florida in two days after he bought a condo. That's how little he had in his house. <laughs> <laughs> hey, different strokes so for different folks, Evelyn. Um, we're kindred spirits, okay. as you said. Thank you for sharing that. Finally, Oliver on Staten Island. Hello, Oliver. Oh, my goodness. I cannot believe it. What a joy to be with you. I have a number of things I wanted to share with you. Are you with me? I'm with you. Oh, my goodness gracious. Well, the first thing I wanted to say to you, oh, no, that was for uh, Sliwa. Um, but here, here's the simple thing. I wanted to veer off of the, uh, you know, all of the drama and the Chech- Chechnya, whether Ukraine and all the pandemic. Uh, and I just wanted to share with you that I just played, and I've been playing for about a year now, Scrabble Go. And I just played a word, Frank, for 56 points on Scrabble Go. And so what I want to know is that if there is anyone who has ever played a five-letter word for 56 points. So what was the word, Oliver? That's for extra points. I don't, you want to know the word? I, I guess so, yeah. All right, all right. I'm going to tell you the word. You never think of it? The word was... Zingy, zingy. You remember Judy Garland's song? Zing went the strings of my heart. I do indeed, Oliver. Thank you very much. Congratulations on your Scrabble victory. Hopefully one of you can have the same luck in answering 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you think you've got the right stuff, if you think you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, then give us a call right now, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. The seventh caller to that number, 800-848-9222, will get an opportunity to play the $1,000 Minute. WABC.
Fridays. This is uh, The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We're reliving some of our glory days here. Hopefully, what will occur in the next couple of minutes will give one lucky person a story to tell for a lifetime. Because it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Ah, yes, thank you. Time to play the $1,000 Minute. Let's meet today's contestant, Joe, on Long Island. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Frank. Joe Meltzer calling. Joe, I understand it was your uh, birthday yesterday. Yes, it was. The big five nine. Oh, well, happy birthday. Uh, you share a birthday with a lot of interesting people, including um, my uh, my cousin-in-law, Kim Kravitz, a beautiful woman, and my friend Mary Ellen Higgins, another beautiful woman. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. My pleasure. All right, Joe. Um, I think Caesar, too. No, wasn't Julius Caesar involved somewhere, or is that something No, he else? got killed on that day. Excellent. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully, I'm glad things turned out better for you than they did for him. On the so far, so good. All right. Uh, so you know the game, Joe. You know yeah, how to I play. Uh, we I will we'll start the timer as soon as I ask the first question. You ready to go? Let us go. Name a number between 1 and 10. 7. What state lies directly to the north of South Dakota? North Dakota. What disease did Lou Gehrig suffer from? MLS. Um, um, oh, oh, God. Um, Lou Gehrig's disease? We'll take it. Who was the 16th president of the United States? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> it was not Jesus. No, I know. I have no idea, sir. Take a guess. Think of the most uh, famous president you could think of. Millard Fillmore. That's the most famous president you could think of? Millard no, Fillmore? I don't like Millard Fillmore? Uh, it is not. The 16th president of the United States is uh, a fellow that you might be familiar with if you uh, ever had. Who? Who do you say? Jackson? No. Uh, for the Millard uh, Fillmore no. was the 13th president. Uh, Abraham Close. Lincoln was the 16th oh, president Lord. of the United States. Oh, oh, well, we will try again. All right. Okay, Joe. Sorry you didn't win. Um, now, Thanks do, for a great show. We've given you a consolation prize uh, before, haven't we? No. Well, we haven't? All right. Okay. Uh, go on hold, and um, Molly will take your information. I mean, um, I figured, I thought that was a pretty easy question, 16th president. I feel like everybody knows whoever the current president is, then they know the first president, that's George Washington, and you know the 16th. And if you've seen the movie Die Hard with a Vengeance, you know the 21st. I can understand if you don't know the 30th president. It'd take me a second to know the 30th president. But um, 16th president, that's a pretty easy question. So there's no controversy there. I don't want to hear any complaining from any of you in the Facebook group. If you want to join the Facebook group, uh, just go to Morano Radio Fans and Haters or just uh, like our Facebook page at uh, Calvin Coolidge was the 30th president. Yes, that's right. Calvin Coolidge. If you want to um, if you want to like the Facebook page, you'll automatically get an invite to join the Facebook group. It's uh, Facebook.com slash Morano fan. Now, um, Joe did get some pretty neat The Other Side of Midnight merchandise. And you know who else did? The people that are buying it. 
I got a very nice uh, message from my future sister-in-law, Kat. Her mom, Marsha, listens to this show every day from Texas, okay? And she listens on streaming audio at WABCradio.com. She ordered from the really neat store that we have, WABCradioStore.com. She not only ordered a Frank Morano WABC cap, which is pretty neat. I don't even have this one that she has. She ordered the truck stop style coffee mug, which we have, which we had here, but somebody pilfered. And the alien style coffee mug with the alien Prometheus and uh, an emblem that says the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. So if you want to get any of this really neat merchandise, not only is it great stuff, um, you can go to WABCRadioStore.com. And I think if you use the promo code Frank15, you will be able to get uh, a discount on it. But not only is it pretty neat stuff, but uh, you'll also help me look like a little bit of a big shot around here if more and more people start ordering my stuff. So go to WABCRadioStore.com, search The Other Side of Midnight, or search Morano. All sorts of cool stuff's on there, including brand-new merchandise. And we're constantly adding new merchandise on there. And uh, I have some ideas for some new merchandise, but... um, I don't. I don't always remember where I'm supposed to send my ideas for that. So I'm. I'm coming up with some new stuff, and uh, there's a lot of great stuff that's being constantly added. So it's at wabcradiostore.com. That's at wabcradiostore.com. Speaking of WABC, uh, time now for the 77 WABC clip clip of the day. This comes to us from the morning show with um, Bernie and Sid. Uh, this is from the Bernie and Sid show. So my question is this. uh, Why aren't Republicans in every single state proposing legislation like uh, what what was proposed down in Florida, the parental rights legislation? I mean, this is is a no-brainer. What you experience with Republicans is they don't say anything. They're backstabbers, whether it's Mitch McConnell or Paul Ryan or Mitt Romney, any one of these folks. They're backstabbers. They say nothing. So I'm a Republican now. And I'm a big Donald Trump supporter now. But to be completely honest, the party sucks. The philosophy's all right. The policies are right. There's no cohesiveness. Well, the I'm Democrats not... at least stick together. They're evil. They're losers. They're lowlifes. But they stick together. Well, and now, I, I don't think that anybody uh, in politics is, a, uh, e- is evil. I think it might be people you disagree with. It doesn't make them evil. I think there's a lot of good people that sacrifice a lot to go into public service. That's my view. But one of those great public servants is former Congressman Peter King. He is going to be co-hosting, I believe, the Bernie and Sid show tomorrow. If he's not co-hosting for St. Patrick's Day, he's at least going to be featured on a big portion of the Bernie and Sid show tomorrow from 6 to 10. Tomorrow is a big day. Here at the radio station in that uh, we have a whole day of St. Patrick's Day stuff planned. Uh, We have all sorts of great St. Patrick's Day programming, uh, all sorts of interviews with all sorts of great Irish guests. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Hopefully you'll be wearing green and uh, enjoying some corned beef and cabbage. Now, we here at this uh, radio program were supposed to enjoy some corned beef and cabbage today. In fact, uh Molly had told me a day in advance, she had given me a warning, just so you know, Kellen, that's her longtime companion, 
is going to be making corned beef and cabbage. And I'm going to be bringing in some tomorrow. And she says, and he's making a whole bunch of it. So just be prepared. So um, as Molly and I were having our pre-show meeting to go over material related to the Paul Manafort interview, I said, all right, walk with me. We'll go to the kitchen. I'll take a look at the corned beef. And then, Molly, you proceeded to break the news to me that in spite of the fact that I had been warned 24 hours in advance that we were going to have corned beef and cabbage, that there was no no corned beef and cabbage. What happened? Uh, My boyfriend, uh, uh, unfortunately... My uh, <laughs> my millions that I make here at WABC don't quite cover the rent. Um, so he was at work a little later than we anticipated, and he got to the five pounds of raw meat a little too late. So it's done. It's been cooked. It just wasn't done until about 1030, which is too late for me to have started prepping for your show. I, I needed to be here. So I picked your show over the meat. Well, perhaps, and I don't really care about... Um Corned beef. I'm not, you know, I'm not a big red meat person in general. Obviously not. You but, don't care. That's why we're talking about well, it right now. Well, no, but it is, you know, I mean, you did have us prepare for this. I mean, I would have liked to have tried the, the cabbage at least. Matt Blaze, you'll recall that when I told you I was bringing in some of my Aunt Camille's egg salad the next day, what then occurred? You brought in the egg That's salad. right. That's right. That's right. Because I want to give people an opportunity to prepare. If they pack a lunch, they don't have to pack a lunch. If they're you know, worried about whether they're eating dinner or getting breakfast that day, they don't have to worry about that. But you kind of left us in the lurch, you and Kellen there, Molly. Well, I know he's not listening. <laughs> um, and- well, see, it goes to show a listener to this show <laughs> would never do that. And it only only someone that doesn't listen to this show would would disappoint would disappoint their significant others, co-workers in such a manner. I mean, truth be told, I'm disappointed that he's not listening. Yeah. I, w- I would like him you to be roasted both. online for ADO. You and me both. Now he's going to get it through the podcast, and it's just not going to have the same not effect. The same. And, You're right. you know, it's not a worthwhile reprimand then. That's true. All right. Uh, well, if you want to reprimand someone, that is one of the many uses of your 15 seconds of fame. If you want to be heard on any subject for 15 seconds, you can be heard next at 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. Zero point zero. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. side of midnight i'm frank moreno if you've been listening to our show live you probably have heard frank diaz's uh, news reports in which he broke the news on a story that i have been covering for literally years and there's been a major major development on tuesday the united states senate 
uh, passed legislation that would make daylight saving time permanent starting in 2023, ending this twice annual changing of the clocks. Uh, This is wonderful news. Um, Now, I think it's wonderful news. Uh, Mr. Eichner, who we spoke to the other day, is an advocate of standard time. He probably is not going to be happy. I'm happy that we can end this clock changing. Now, if you gave me the choice of standard time versus daylight saving time, I would have taken standard time. I don't love the later sunrise and having kids commute to school when it's when it's dark out. That being said, I will happily take this. I also don't love the fact that everyone calls it daylight savings time, and I'm going to have to listen to a year of that now rather than nine months of it. But I will make no mistake, I am. this is a big win, and I hope the House acts just as quickly. Yeah. I, I, I wrote to my congressman, and uh, I, asked, uh, I asked her, her congressperson, I asked her to get on board with this change. Uh, but uh, big, big news. A lot of us have been fighting for this for a long time, so that's wonderful to hear. Matt, what was that sound that we played there? What was that? That was uh, Andy B. Oh, I see. He was still still playing. I see. All right. Fair enough. Molly, by the way, how do you spell Lindbergh? No idea. I see. Because you were spelling Lindbergh almost like Lindbergh or cheese (laughs) on the the phone board all night when it's actually, I mean, he's a pretty well-known guy throughout American history. Who is? Yeah, exactly. Right. But no, did you learn about Charles Lindbergh in school? Uh, yeah, definitely. And you um, never had an exam or something where you had to know how to spell Lindbergh? I do a lot of Frank. No, <laughs> I'm so tired, Frank. I do so many things at one time that spelling is like uh, fair enough. the okay. last, the function I care least about. All right. Fair to enough. make sure everything else is happening. But. All right. Well, I can't uh, I can't reproach you for that. All right. It is time now for you to be heard for 15 seconds. In the case of Mike in New Rochelle, he only wants 14. But for the rest of you, you get 15 seconds of fame. The other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. I don't know the name of this guy. He's on your station around 1 o'clock in the afternoon. He has to be the most annoying guy on the radio. How the hell did he get a radio show? Is he related to the owner or something? I think that might be the guy on at noon. Leo, Upper West Side. Hello. Well, I think uh, Eric Adams is going to have problems to find uh, people who look like him because there's not too many editors and and, uh, broadcasters. Running around in the Ferragamo shoes. Larry in Brooklyn. Manafort waxes Churchillian when he says a javelin is the same as a no-fly zone. In the end, appeasement only delays the crocodile from consuming you. Give the Ukrainians the no-fly zone. Joe in Rocky Point. Hey, Frank, this is the loser from the $1,000 Minute this morning. I just wanted to share a little story with you, how I come to listen to your show. I have a small automotive service center, and I have loaner cars that go out. And one of my customers returned it to an Indian station. And I started listening, and I never turned it off. Wonderful. Mike and New Rochelle. Good morning, Frank. Great show tonight. I loved all the interviews. Next time you speak to Gianni Russo, ask him to explain to you how he solved the Lindbergh kidnapping. Steve on Staten Island. Hello, 
Neil on Staten Island. After last night's show, I've instructed my attorney to add you to the will, to my will, as an equal share with him. He said he'll do it when he gets a chance. Somehow, I don't think he'll ever get a chance. Jeff in West Islip. Frank, lay off of Molly. Stuff happens, and Biden and his crew shouldn't be running a lemonade stand. Mark in Westchester. Yes, uh, Frank, I want to say I enjoy your show every night. I drive in my security business from 12 p.m. to 7 a.m. I could not get by it without you. And finally, Jay in Cincinnati. And Vino Vincent, Frank, the truth comes out. All right. Well, that slams the lid on things for today. The uh, WABC Early News is next. Got the Bernie and Sid show starting at 6 a.m. They got a great show, including former Congressman Pete King. Oh, he's on today. He's on today. And Dr. Mark Siegel. So it should be an interesting show. I'll be back at 1 a.m. Frank Moreno. Good day.